The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Legendary French Emperor Napoleon motherfucking Bonaparte. That is the man we're talking about today. An important historical figure who knew he would be an important historical figure. He once wrote, history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. Even when I am gone, I shall remain in people's minds, the star of their rights. My name will be the war cry of their efforts, the motto of their hopes. Dude had no shortage of confidence, which is part of why he became the namesake of the Napoleon complex. A complex characterized by overly aggressive or domineering social behavior, Carries the implication that such behavior is compensatory for the subject's stature. Nailed that word! Uh, that complex is also known as little man syndrome and short man's complex and uh, little fella baby feet affliction. I, uh, I, I did make up that last one. But ironically, Napoleon was not short. More on that later. Short, tall, or average, the dude left his mark on the history books in a big way. As a military commander, Napoleon fought and won more battles than almost anyone else in history. His campaigns are still studied in military academies today. He was a strategical genius. He also helped discover the Rosetta Stone, and he was directly responsible for doubling the size of the United States. Bonaparte even came up with the system of odd addresses on one side of the street and even addresses on the other. Napoleon's life is actually so well documented, it seems that only God has more books written about him than Napoleon. But with all this coverage, uh, there's, there's, there's come a, a great deal of divisiveness. Should he be remembered as good or evil. Napoleon might best be remembered for his temperament. He was arrogant and cruel, but also incredibly charismatic and able to inspire both his troops and the imaginations of his followers. He had a gift for leadership. And despite the vast amount of literature dedicated to Napoleon, the former emperor's life is shrouded myth, mostly because his many, many enemies didn't want to give him credit for his victories, and also because Napoleon himself was a shrewd propagandist who loved to minimize his failures. He was always mindful of his legacy, understood the power of myth-building. He would write and publish articles about himself that were sometimes the exact opposite of what had historically happened. 
He believed his destiny was to be a God king and fuck the haters. Dude would have crushed it today on social media. He knew how to fake it till you make it, how to control the narrative, how to control perception in order to project the reality that you want to be known for. For this very French suck, we're going to look at the many reasons why Napoleon is still a household name across the globe over 200 years after his death. Napoleon is sometimes called the father of modern Europe. He streamlined legal codes across the continent, shook up politics, fought for religious tolerance, reshaped the world, and his life is our focus today on this historical European edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers, you glorious meat sacks. Thanks for attending this week's gathering of the Cult of the Curious. Do you have your robes on? Do you got your ceremonial swords in hand? Have you made your sacrifice to Nimrod? Prayed to Lucifina to be spared her tricks and helped instead of harmed? Have you left out a bowl of good boy treats for Bojangles? Praise him. Okay, good. Set your background music to uh, Triple M Yacht Rock. Relax and get ready. I'm Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker, Grandmaster Suck, King of the Suck, Head Dipshit of the Mushmouth Empire. I, I didn't intentionally just mess up Mushmouth, but it happened. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, thank you again to the Patreon Space Lizards for allowing us to donate $2,000 this month to one of the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation stair climbs. Link in the episode description. Click donate, then donate to an individual. Type the name in Cameron Owens. Make sure, uh, uh, you know, a time sucker and space are getting some credit for doing something good. Hail Nimrod. And I uh, I think I messed up with that uh, link. I added it later to last week's episode description. It's, it's, it's in this one right now. And... Um, Met some people in Cleveland who are going to be uh, helping him as well. So that was really cool. Uh, thanks to everyone who has rated and reviewed The Suck this past week. Almost 7,000 reviews. Appreciate you taking the time to do that very, very much. I know we're all busy, and uh, sometimes it truly is hard to find the time or to remember to leave a rating or, or write a review for what you like. I'm bad about it myself. Uh, most of us balancing a lot of stuff, a lot of pots on the stove to make life work in 2019 for many of us. But I, I appreciate it. A lot of new listeners coming in from a lot of other places. And um, uh, based on uh, recent reviews, don't, the, the, the main theme of, of the negative ones that do come in, which thankfully aren't nearly as much as the positive ones, is uh, that some of you wish this podcast wasn't comedic. I don't normally like to address the negative stuff, but <laughs> I want to address this one because it keeps coming up for the past few months. I, I get it. You want the info that we're providing, but you don't think I'm funny, which is totally your right. Well, don't worry. This is pretty cool. I have come up with a way for you to enjoy the time you spend podcasting and not have to listen to my attempts at jokes. Here's what you can do. You can go fuck off and you can listen to something else. Do you see how, do you see how that works? There's plenty of other shit out there, you dummy. Like this podcast, for as long as it lasts, for sure is going to be my attempt at spreading intellectual curiosity through absurd, often dark humor because that's what I love to do and so do uh, a, a lot of other people. A lot of other people, whether you believe that or not, actually do enjoy it. And, and your shitty, narcissistic review isn't going to change that, you fucking delusional moron. Look at the other reviews. Thousands of five-star reviews. People who clearly enjoy the humor you do not. And yet you still think, huh, maybe if I send this message, he'll change his complete approach to life in general. No! Get out of here, Captain Killjoy, you fucking weirdo. Hail Nimrod. Ah, I felt good. I felt good. I felt like I needed to get that in my system this week. I like it. I uh, forgot to include a GoFundMe last week, like I said. Uh, oh, that's what I forgot. Not the other thing. I forget what I forgot. I forgot to include the GoFundMe last week uh, in the episode description. It is in there now. For a father named Michael in the UK who found out he had stage four colon cancer weeks before the birth of his baby. 
uh, shit, man. Uh, you know, it's, it's fucking terrible. And, uh, and we have that GoFundMe link in, in the episode description now. It's the Team Monk GoFundMe link. So can't imagine what that's like. Uh, I know some of you time suckers were writing and asking about that because you're awesome people. And now that link is in there for sure. And you can click right away to, uh, to donate and help out somebody you, you don't know, which is one of the most beautiful things that happens with our community here. Uh, and speaking of community, had an amazing time in Cleveland this past weekend at Hilarity's Comedy Club. Thanks for, uh, to all of you for showing up at the Live Suck, the stand-up shows. Huge thanks to Kate and Logan from Access Apparel for coming down and live pressing one of the coolest shirts I've ever worn. And I know I'm biased, but uh, I just, I love this shirt. You can see the design on Instagram. If you're on YouTube, I'm wearing it right now. This live anthill kid suck is fucking incredible. Um, and on Instagram, it's Dan Cummins Comedy Thank, or Time Suck Podcast. Thanks to everyone for being so cool to my wife, uh, Lindsay, Queen of the Suck, popped in at the end of the live suck, helped sell merch all weekend. Uh, she'll be with me again in Nashville this weekend for the live Ant Hill Kids Suck happening there. Also, Access Apparel will be back with us in Zanies in Nashville, part of the National Comedy Festival on Sunday. Uh, blessed to be working with great people and have great fans. Uh, I don't say that enough. Uh, the venues I work tell me how great you people are every single week. Respectful, kind, good people who like to laugh at dark shit. Uh, the best meat sacks on the planet. And I love the diversity. A lot of Christians coming out uh, in uh, Cleveland. And I mean, I know that you know that I'm not a religious person, but but you listen anyway, and you like it, and you say nice things after the show because you're uh, you're beautiful, tolerant people. So thank you for being you. Uh, heading to Des Moines, Iowa, one night only this Thursday, April 11th, to meet more of you. Going to be a nice full show. Going to be in Kansas City, Missouri this weekend. Some shows already sold out. Uh, Going to see my buddy Johnny Dare, April 12th and 13th. On to the Texas Theater in Dallas, April 26th. Bring my son Kyler on the road for the first time. Bring him to Houston on the 27th for the Seeker Group. Yeah, we just added that second show. Oh, man, Sweet Tea, Barbecue, my son. It's going to be a fun fucking road trip. Off to San Francisco, Boston, Spokane, Jacksonville. Much more after after Texas. More info, dancummins.tv. Super quick merch reminder, and then we're into the episode. The Easter version of the A-Hole Banjo Tea that gets shipped to you in a big old giant plastic Easter egg because we like doing weird shit here. Um, uh, you know, so you can put a little air banjo into your Easter egg suck uh, or Easter egg hunt this year. That's in the store. Uh, you got to order by April 17th to guarantee arrival before Easter Sunday. And if you ever have any uh, problems, you know, with your orders, just uh, do not hesitate to, inf- uh, to email Kate at Access Apparel. I think it's on the Shopify. It's definitely in the episode description, and she'll take care of you. Okay, that's it. That's it. Now let's get historical. Let's get French. Let's get ambitious. Let's tackle the man, the myth, the legend that was Napoleon motherfucking Bonaparte. All I thought I knew about Napoleon before this episode was that he was uh, really short, pretty angry about it, uh, dressed like Prince. Uh, Prince. He dressed like Prince. You know, you know Prince. No, he dressed like Prince and, uh, and was a French dictator who fought a lot. Part of me wants to say that he traveled through time in a phone booth to eat ice cream and uh, go to a mall in California, but that part of me uh, should best be ignored. Uh, did you know, by the way, that it was just announced a few weeks ago that Bill and Ted 3 is being written right now? Uh, it's supposed to be filmed this summer. It'll star original stars uh, Alex Winters and uh, Keanu Reeves. And if everything works out, it's going to hit the theaters in the summer of 2020. Man, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure it came out in 1989, 30 years ago. Holy shit. And uh, Keanu Reeves, he's 71 years old now. That's fucking bananas to me. Because um, it's not true. He's 54. Time flies, though. And they're not a sponsor, but they should be. Uh, but they probably won't be because there's a very good chance that movie is going to be absolutely terrible. Right? Let's be honest. <laughs> whoa, whoa, dude. I don't know if that's going to play at 54. Anyway, 
Napoleon, stay focused, Cummins. Bonaparte, rightly or wrongly, compared uh, to other tyrants. In that light, he's viewed as kind of a Hitler-esque kind of sociopath. Guy who declared himself kind of a god king more times than, than you would like to see in a humble, well-adjusted, man-of-the-people type ruler. Uh, Napoleon preferred to think that he was he was following in the footsteps of Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, other guys who were, who were a little light on humility. Two other guys who would make great sucks, by the way. Uh, regardless of whether uh, you think he was evil or think he was a hero or some mixture of both, which is usually where we find the truth, his historical significance cannot be overstated. We're going to follow the timeline of his life and achievements for the most part, but we will take some uh, time to delve into his romances, the French Revolution, how his battle with Haiti completely altered the trajectory of our world. Napoleon is a, is a crazy example of what one single person can do in a lifetime. Really mind-blowing if you focus on that aspect in this story. One person, born like anyone else, one soul trapped in the same fragile meat sack skin as the rest of us, who wasn't preordained for greatness, you know? The universe didn't tap him on the shoulder when he was a kid and be like, you, all you got to do is coast, bro. You're just going to fucking dominate. Nope. Uh, you know, and, and then he led a life that would significantly change the lives of millions and millions and millions of people. So fascinating. Uh, you know, the people who had so many instances could have just given up, could have stopped when things got really tough or just never started in the first place, but they didn't. They just kept making shit happen. Just force of will, right? Forces of nature disguised as everyday people. Uh, Napoleon lived during a tumultuous time when Europeans were murdering each other for liberty, committing coups, fighting with the church, and in France, uh, yeah, quite literally uh, chopping a lot of people's heads off. Viva la revolution! Uh, and he somehow kept his own head uh, on his shoulders despite fighting, 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 and fighting some more. Now let's hop into our time suck timeline and see how lazy we will all feel about what we've accomplished uh, by comparison at the end of this episode. Fucking Napoleon. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Uh, Napoleon was born Napoleon de Bonaparte, uh, August 15th, 1769, in uh, Ayacha, Corsica. He was the fourth of 11 children of Carlo Bonaparte and uh, Letizia Romolino. Uh, just three months before uh, Napoleon's birth, um... Actually, you know what? I, I, I say fourth of, of 11. I think it was actually uh, eight kids. So I'm going to, there, there's a lot of, lot of conflicting sources. So pause on the 11th, perhaps eight. It's going to come up in a little bit and uh, go with what I'm going to say here soon. Uh, just three months before Napoleon's birth, the French had annexed Corsica with military force. Uh, and then his father, a member of a, a noble Italian family, uh, which I think is interesting, right? I didn't know that about Napoleon, that he actually has like an Italian heritage. Uh, as opposed to French, really, when you get down to it. Uh, his father remained on good terms with the French when they took over Corsica. And Napoleon would describe his entrance into the world this way. Uh, I entered the earth uh, by way of my mother's uh, vagina, almost suffocated, when my face was twice for a time on my mother's body, but then I did not die. My mother's nibble was placed in my mouth, and I sucked upon it heartily. And I thrived with my mother's nibble. No, he didn't talk like that. And I talked. It'd make me so happy if he did. Uh, he said, I was born in Corsica, uh, or I was born when Corsica was perishing. 30,000 Frenchmen spewed onto our shores, drowning the throne of liberty in waves of blood. The cries of the dying, the groans of the oppressed, and tears of despair surrounded my cradle from the hour of my birth. No short on drama, this guy. Old Napoleon drama pants. Uh, Napoleon's parents, Carlo and Leticia, uh, they were considered minor aristocrats. 
They owned multiple homes. They dressed like silly hat wearing assholes, which was customary at the time. Uh, they looked like uncomfortable powder dolls. Uh, the prep time for leaving the house back then must have been insane. Multiple clothing layers, wigs, makeup, a lot of time spent in the mirror, practicing looking snooty and above everything. Uh, Napoleon's parents uh, looked bougie, but they actually weren't that wealthy. Uh, with eight kids, the Bonaparte uh, family struggled to keep up appearances. The struggle helped uh, develop Napoleon's ideals about meritocracy. Let the path be open to talent, he would say at the pinnacle of his power. I do love that thought, a meritocracy. Very hard to actually implement. But theoretically, I think the best way to run a country or run a business, right? Let each employment position be filled by the most talented applicant. Not sure Napoleon actually did that. We'll look at that later. He seemed to uh, go on to create more of a uh, who has kissed my ass, the hardest, uh, uh, but I like the thought. Uh, Corsica was an impoverished island nation well before the French took over. It's located in the Mediterranean between Italy and France. With a population between 100 and 200 or 100,000 and 120,000 inhabitants, uh, Cor- Corsicans had seen their fair share of invading armies. Excuse me, over the centuries, uh, from Romans and Moors to uh, Genoese, the Corsicans had fought many battles and they'd won a lot of them. Uh, but France had developed into one of the world's most modern armies, and the Corsicans were easily brought under the French flag in 1769, again, the year of Napoleon's birth. Prior to the French t- uh, takeover, Corsica had enjoyed a brief 14 years of independence. After seceding from uh, the Republic of Genoa, an an independent nation primarily located in the northwestern Italian peninsula's coast. Uh, Prior to Genoese rule, Corsica had belonged to the Carthaginians, uh, Carthaginians, I think is how you say it, Romans, Greeks, uh, and others during its long, long history of human civilization. According to the ancient 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus, uh, the world's original historian, at least the one we know about, the Phoenicians originally settled the island sometime prior to the 5th century BCE. So a lot of people have been there for a long time. After the French take over the island, uh, many Corsican rebels who identified more as Italian than French fled to the mountains where they would continue to fight on uh, for years against French occupation. Napoleon's parents did not join that fight. When the time came for them to fight or submit, Napoleon's father decided he was best suited for assimil- assimilation with the new French rulers. He put on uh, you know, some of their sweet powdered wigs, Put on some silver buckled shoes, ate their cheeses, drank their wine. And for this, uh, Napoleon never forgave his father. He considered his father's decision a betrayal uh, to the Corsican people, which is pretty ironic, I think, for one of the greatest French nationalists in history to be mad at his dad for bowing down to the French. But, you know, Napoleon was Corsican first, uh, Frenchman second. Uh, he, only really, he only really loved France when he was running it. Uh, Napoleon's dad was born March 29th, 1746 in uh, Ayachko, uh, Corsica. In 1764, Carlo uh, married Letizia, and after getting a law degree from the University of Pisa, he would go on to practice law and be elected to the Corsican Assembly. He would be an assessor to the royal court uh, for uh, Ayacho, uh, still the biggest city on the island, with about 70,000 people. And Carlo dreamed big for his kids. He put a lot of ambition in children. It was his dream that his, his kids would be recognized as nobles in the French system. Uh, many years later, when Napoleon was crowning himself the first emperor France had seen in a millennium, he did say to his brother, uh, Joseph Bonaparte, if only our father could see us now. Uh, and he said probably some French equivalent of like, fuck yeah, we fucking did it, bro. We're fucking running this shit, bro. Um, uh, while Carlo and, and Napoleon's relationship was rocky, uh, the future emperor adored and admired his, his mother. I love you, mother. Uh, Letizia. Letizia was born on August 24th, 1750. Also in Ayacho. 
she was simple, frugal in her taste, devout in thought. She helped bind her children to the life of Corsica. As a mother, she was without equal, he said. He praised her strength and toughness and said all of his success is from her. Napoleon also oddly described his mom as, as not being the most physically attractive woman, saying, quote, she had the head of a man on the body of a woman. Ah, that's great. I'm sure mom loved that. That's exactly what every mother, and just that's really what every woman in general wants to hear. You can't go wrong with a compliment like that. Uh, my mother is a wonderful woman. Uh, she has a big, meaty head of a man on the body of a woman. Uh, she has a, how you say, butter face. It's as if God had placed uh, the hairy, lumpy head of a lumberjack on the body of a bikini model. Uh, she gave birth to eight children. Was actually pregnant 13 times back when medicine was uh, was basically chanting and washing your hands and slapping on some leeches. Uh, maybe that's how she got that man head. Or maybe Napoleon meant the mind of a man. Maybe it was some kind of chauvinistic compliment back when uh, nobody uh, challenged chauvinism. Uh, like many families throughout history, and especially before the advent of birth control, the goal of the Bonapartes was to kick out as many kids as humanly possible. Uh, keeping up with the Joneses used to involve just uh, shooting out babies until your vagina waved a white flag. Uh, Letizia was a champion birther. Her childbearing hips just uh, pumped out Joseph in 1768, Napoleon in 1769, Lucien in 1775, uh, Lisa in 1777, uh, Louis in 1778, uh, Pauline 1780, Caroline 1782, and uh, and Bob in 1784. No, it was uh, it was Jerome in 1784. Um, Napoleon spent his first uh, nine years in Corsica doing normal things. You'd expect a, uh, a possible budding psychopath with a God complex to do, bullying his teachers, crushing enemies, declaring himself the first head of his family. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, I, and I think it's safe to say that uh, neighborhood pets may have steered clear to this dude. I don't have any sources to say he was cruel to animals, but it feels like he was a guy who probably kicked a dog or two as a kid. Um, and, uh, and on the web, you'll find, uh, a lot of things talking about how he wasn't terribly fond of cats, which is actually not true. His nephew who had become Napoleon the third was afraid of cats. And over time, this feline fear became attributed to Napoleon the first fucking telephone game. That's what happens when everybody gets the same name. Uh, Napoleon excelled his math at math as a kid. He was a mathematical talent that math, uh, those math skills would later help his military, uh, strategizing. He was considered domineering, not a great trait for us, for a young boy. Uh, you know, like a, uh, as a student, but uh, awesome, awesome trait for somebody with emperor ambitions. Some of his, of his teachers recommended that he join the military throughout his early schooling, and that's exactly what would happen. Uh, Bonaparte began his military training at the age of eight. After, after reading about Napoleon's early years, it sounds like he was, he was practicing bayonet moves at recess while other kids were sticking gum under their desks. Little Napoleon was probably formulating kickball strategies using uh, Sun Tzu's art of war. Uh, the, the world is, is pretty lucky he didn't have bombs and planes. Or the earth might look very different right now. We'd, we'd have, he would have just taken it all over. We'd have flat Napoleoners telling us about an ice wall encircling uh, Napoleonia. Uh, during the winter of 1778, while America is still celebrating its new station status and figuring out how to run a country and celebrate 4th of July with sparklers, little nine-year-old Napoleon leaves Corsica to be educated at a private military academy in France known as Brienne. It was his father, Carlo, who managed to get Napoleon a scholarship. Um, Napoleon could hardly speak French. Corsicans at the time still spoke Italian and the French kids made fun of him, which I'm sure added fuel to his fire. All right. His desire to one day rise above them all. He, uh, certainly fueled his pride in Corsican heritage. And Bonaparte is said at that time to have dreamed of liberating his homeland. 
He spent five years in uh, Brion uh, before he was able to go back home to Corsica for a visit. That's fucking crazy to me. At nine, at nine, I think that would have broken me at nine. How does that? How does that not make you a little cold-hearted? When at nine years old, you're just you're taken away from your family. You don't get to see him for five years. I mean, we're all familiar with like uh, mama's boys. When I was nine, I was a grandma's boy. The sun rose and set on sweet Grandma Betty. Saturday sleepovers, Grandma's house every Saturday. Saturday Night Live, ice cream, WWF wrestling with Grandpapa. Oh, poor little Napoleon had grandparents too. He was shipped off at nine years old. Wouldn't see anybody that he knew for five years, man. Life was so much harsher in centuries past. No way I would send Kyler and Monroe anywhere for longer than a few weeks. Uh, Maybe I'm just emotionally weak, but it makes me sad a little bit. Uh, 1784. Napoleon's 15 years old. He's promoted to the Royal Military Academy in Paris. Paris. Uh, this is where Operation God King, you know, really kind of gets put in motion. He, uh, he, be- he begins his military uh, uh, academy life there as a second lieutenant when he starts his apprenticeship at the best art- in the best artillery unit. Artillery. I think I add, people say I add an extra syllable in there. Uh, uh, in the best artillery. Instead of artillery. Unit in the French army. The following year, when Napoleon is just 16, there's some trouble at home. His father dies of cancer on February 24th, 1785. Uh, Napoleon misses a ton of schoolwork in the wake of his father's death and ends up graduating 42nd out of 58 students. Not great. However, he uh, he did still become the first Corsican to ever graduate from the French military academy. Pretty great. And uh, he was considered an expert at siding a gun and at deploying troops. Maybe even a little more great. Uh, so he handled it. Uh, throughout Bonaparte's early military career, he he feared that coming from underprivileged roots, that not coming from a noble family uh, or noble enough would uh, prevent him from promotion into the higher ranks of uh, of the military that he desired. At the time, pretty much only French nobles made it to the top of the military. Feeling uncertain about his military future, he briefly lost focus on military domination and for a, a little time dreamed of becoming a famous author instead. And he would actually go on to write a short story of Corsica and also a romance novella that would uh, not be published until after his death called Clisson and Eugenie. It currently uh, has four to five stars on Amazon. If you want to check it out, uh, I, I previewed it. and it, it, To me, it looks absolutely fucking terrible. But, um, but maybe you like it. Uh, now let's talk about revolution. Killing in the name of. Yes. If it were not for the French Revolution, we would probably not know the name Napoleon Bonaparte. His romance novel, it wasn't that good. The, the French Revolution made his rise to power possible. The French monarchy had civil wars and political violence erupting everywhere. It was also fighting uh, basically every other nation in Europe uh, at the same fucking time. Uh, France was able to pull this off because it was one of the world's most advanced nations at that time. It was quite wealthy and powerful and in the time of King Louis XVI and Qu- Queen Marie Antoinette. But it was also terribly unstable and heads would soon uh, literally roll. 1792. At the age of 23, Napoleon took a leave of absence from the French military to travel back to Corsica. While he was away, France continued to terrorize itself. During a visit in Paris, to Paris, Napoleon witnessed French riders storm the castle, make Louis XVI wear a silly hat in defeat. By August, the king had been dethroned. Napoleon understood the rapidly changing order of France and Europe, and he wanted to be a part of it. Saw opportunities. Uh, to start with, he had his sights on, uh, set on, you know, on rising to local power via some Corsican politics. Uh, Napoleon becomes a lieutenant in the Corsican National Guard, sails home, rallies some pro-French troops on the island. He was no longer a Corsican nationalist after spending years of his childhood in France. And he fights against the governor of Corsica, uh, Filippo Antonio uh, Pasquale de Poulet. 
uh, a boyhood hero of his. Another dude with way too long of a fucking name. Ah, God, not one Greg Smith in this story. And uh, Poulet kicked Napoleon's fucking ass. And Napoleon and his supporters were exiled. Didn't go as well as he had hoped to start off here. Uh, while their home was being sacked by the locals in defeat, Napoleon, his mother, three brothers, and three sisters took their belongings, got on a boat, sailed away. Napoleon's first time being kicked out of a country for life, and it wouldn't be the last. Another interesting moment in the story to me, Napoleon has just been kicked out of his beloved home country for life, right? The fight has cost his family his home. He's 23. I'm guessing his mom and siblings are a little unhappy, you know, with what he's done. Just what the fuck, Napoleon? You've ruined our entire lives. Why, why can't you play nice with the governor? We could, bet, we could be on our sweet little island watching a beautiful Corsican sunset, right? Drinking some sort of sweet Corsican beverage, which for some reason in my mind is a Capri Sun. Uh, we could not be homeless now, you fucking moron. A lot of people would have folded in that situation or at least given up having uh, insane ambition, right? I think a lot of people would have just been like, oh, shit, okay, I got to do what I got to do now to make sure the family has enough money to survive. Let's scale it back. Uh, but a lot of people don't have the steel will of Napoleon motherfucking Bonaparte. Yeah, like him or hate this guy being in this episode, you cannot deny. Oh, man, just uh, the willpower. It's incredible to me. On, on June 10th, 1793, Napoleon, with barely any money or possessions, his life in shambles, rejoins the French army. France was still fighting, but the king, queen, and thousands of nobles, political leaders, uh, and clergy had already lost their heads. Great opportunities, yeah, were, were uh, yeah, to be taken right now. There's a lot of turmoil in France. 1793, uh, the Jacobins were the most extreme of uh, the various revolutionary groups at the time. Their, their leader, Maximilien uh, Robespierre, um, had become France's temporary ruler as head of what was called the Directory. Among his first decisions was to suspend the French Constitution and under his rule, uh, you know, chop a lot of heads off. The, the battle between democracy and monarchy is full, in full swing. Over 250,000 people would lose their lives in the French Revolution. And we'll look further into, the, into that in a bit. For now, let's uh, let's continue with uh, Napoleon's rise to power. Uh, back to, yeah, so 1793, Bonaparte, now a 24-year-old officer in the French army, sent to southern France in December to take back uh, from the Allied troops the French port of Toulon Harbor. Uh, and uh, the Allies consisted at that time of troops from Britain, Spain, Naples, Sicily, Sardinia, uh, French loyalists. The, uh, the French army consisted of around 32,000 troops. The Allies had about 22,000 soldiers plus 37 British ships, uh, 32 Spanish ships, and a few others. And while young Napoleon was not the highest-ranking officer uh, when he arrived, historians noted uh, it was obvious he was the superior officer in terms of military mental might. Uh, some historians go as far as saying the other officers in Toulon were completely inept compared to Napoleon. Uh, he began to lay out a strategy to retake the fort. His superiors were initially skeptical of the plan until another more qualified officer came in, looked at it, and basically said, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This is good. This is good. We can work with this. Oh, woo. Give me a rock-hard war boner right now. And they went with Napoleon's method. In the end, 4,000 Allied soldiers were killed. At least 10 of the British Navy ships were destroyed while an anchor to save the rest of their fleet. The Allies retreated. The French lost about 2,000 soldiers in a number of their own ships. Uh, but they won. They won the battle. Napoleon himself was wounded in the leg by a bayonet, but uh, but victory again was his. His plan worked, and uh, a little fame started to spread as him being the the hero of the day in this uh, this battle. Uh, and I find it interesting that he he clearly didn't just plan the battle and then sit back and watch the fighting. I mean, that doesn't happen if you get wounded in the leg with a bayonet. 
Ah, uh, an unnamed sergeant of the Royal Irish Regiment fighting on behalf of the British was the, the person who stabbed him. Dude was a musket lengths away. And, and since Napoleon didn't die that day, I'm guessing that dude did. Uh, sources don't say, uh, but it's pretty easy to infer that. Can you, can you imagine having that life experience? Guy running at you in the heat of battle. There is muskets firing by the thousands, cannons firing continually from the surrounding land, from the ships out in the harbor. You can literally smell the gunpowder, the blood in the air. It's smoky from all the firing, right? You can hear the death screams of hundreds of men. And then some motherfucker is charging at you with a bayonet, runs it into your leg. You're like, no, I will not die this way today, right? Ah, Break it off, you know, it's fucking... Jack him in the fate, whatever. It, ah, it's the intensity. I've never had an experience in my life that is 5% as intense as the experiences he must have had just that one day. Uh, the Battle of Toulon Harbor marked Napoleon's first victory on a battlefield, despite not technically being in command. Guaranteed uh, advancement up the ranks, right? Now he makes it to Brigadier General. Uh, Toulon Harbor would be his first encounter with England. Not be his last. Uh, England's going to be a real thorn in his side. Uh, the people of England uh, get to know and, and now uh, uh, start to uh, start to hate Napoleon. His name would eventually be used as kind of like the name of a boogeyman to scare British children. Uh, their newspapers would end up trolling him constantly. Uh, after Napoleon later commissioned paintings that depicted him as a Roman godlike, you know, uh, war leader, the, the the British cartoonists would would portray him as small and weak. Uh, and that worked so well. The British were so good at their propaganda. That is why that, uh, so many people think he is short still today. When in all actuality, he was a a little above average in height for his time. Uh, Part of the complication regarding his height and part of why some people uh, also thought he was short uh, is the French and British used a different measurement system at the time. And Napoleon in the French system, the way that they would measure things just a little bit differently, he would would be listed as 5'2". But that wasn't 5'2 in today's version of 5'2 in inches. Uh, It would have been actually a lot closer to 5'5 or 5'6". Uh, which is short by today's standards. Uh, you know, I think Joe Paisley's actually like four eight or something like that. Um, uh, but it was, <laughs> it was average, average for the time. Average for the time. A little above average, actually. Uh, crazy. Their propaganda was so effective over two hundred years ago that many still believe it uh, today. I, Paisley, are you listening out there? I feel now. I feel. How, what are you like? What are you like? Five. You're you're taller. Okay. <laughs> He's five nine. He's five nine. You guys. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, their propaganda was so effective over 200 years ago that many still believe it today, which is why we research this shit, right? Right here. This is why it's important to dig into stories, find out if uh, what you've been believing and telling others your whole life is actually true or not. And what we learn here time and time again, time suck. Uh, and if you're like, and, and we love when you send in your uh, corrections, but sometimes it's like, um, actually there was this many children of that. And sometimes there's a ton of like, how, how could you miss that? Because there's history is not there wasn't like some objective arbiter of truth out there being like, this is exactly what happened. It's people writing with different agendas. You know, think about the media today, how polarized, how slanted it is on both sides uh, and how, how manipulative. And, and I feel like, you know, it's always just been that way. So, man, got to dig, got to suck in hard to get a, a higher percentage of truth. On October 5th, 1795, Napoleon got a chance to earn a bit of uh, trust from the French directory. The five-member council, now in charge of the chaotic French government, he was called in to repel an attack by thousands of angry royalists, people who wanted the uh, royalty back in charge, and national guardsmen who were uh, against the new revolutionary government. Because, uh, yeah, France was a fucking dumpster fire of a country in 1795. It was chaos. 
And uh, right after fighting the British and the Spanish, Napoleon is now asked to fight his own people. And he does with gusto. Uh, the man was not above a brutality on the battlefield, even when it came to his own people. In this case, he was dealing with the protesting French mob. And he decided that the best way to kind of quell the mob would be to fire cannons into the crowd. And he killed around 100 people with a single round of cannon blasts. And that, uh, that ended the uprising. They were like, oh, okay, oh, shit, all right. Didn't know you were willing to take it that far. Uh, also did not make him popular amongst the common Parisians, as you can imagine. Can you imagine somebody doing that today? Can you imagine if the White House is like, all right, enough. Fucking fire. And they just fire, fire a row of cannons against protesters. <laughs> Might start a revolution, but the people protesting that moment are like, okay, okay, okay. All right, we're good. We're good. We're, we're fine. We'll leave. Um, the directory rewards him by making him now full general and commander of the army of the interior. Uh, Napoleon later recalled, they put the matter in my hands and then set to discuss whether or not I had the right to repel force by force. Do you intend to wait, said I, until the people give you permission to fire at them? You have appointed me, and I am compromised. It is only fair that I should do the business my own way. On that, I left the lawyers to drown themselves in their own flood of words and got the troops on the move, and I lit those motherfuckers up! He didn't say that last part. But that's, to me, where the quote was going. Uh, he wrote his brother with these sentiments. He said, uh, the enemy attacked us. We killed a great many of them. Now all is quiet. I could not be happier. So, you know, he didn't. He didn't feel bad. Uh, at only 26 years old, Napoleon had gotten Project God King back on schedule three years after being kicked out of Corsica. Having his family home taken from him, he's now in charge of the French army. Right? He just didn't, he didn't let that shit slow him down a bit. Uh, before we delve further into Napoleon's rise to power, many exciting, tragic, and, and bloody wars he'll embark on with basically all of Europe and beyond, let's take a, let's take a look at this dude's love life. It gets pretty weird, and we love weird here. Uh, before we take a look at his love life, let's check in with today's first sponsor. Uh, hey, dude suckers. Hey, uh, hey penis-based meat sacks. I have a question for you. Do you, like, do you like pants? Do you like pants that fit well? If you don't like pants, don't, don't, don't skip. Do you like clothes? Do you like any sort of clothes? Do you like clothes that fit? Well, if you if you do, you are in luck because today's Time Suck is brought to you by Indochino. Indochino is the world's most exciting made-to-measure menswear company. They make suits and shirts to your exact measurement for unparalleled fit and comfort. Made-to-measure suits fit better than off-the-rack suits every time. Do you want, do you want to look like a, like a sitcom assistant funeral home director who still loves with his mom like Ed Kemper? I like my off-the-rack suit mother. I will put your head on a stick if you do not tell me I'm handsome. If that sounds like you, then yeah, just keep buying it off the rack, I guess, you psychopath. But if you want quality, if you're looking, uh, you know, to look good, then head to Indochino.com. If you're getting married soon, Indochino has tons of options to outfit your wedding party. You'll love the wide selection of high-quality fabrics and colors, plus the option to personalize details like uh, your lapel, lining, pockets, buttons, and more. You can visit a stylist in one of their showrooms across North America, have them take your measurements personally or measure at home yourself and shop online at Indochino.com. I did my measurements online. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, knocked them out easily. And she's Polish, as you know. And she was still able to figure it out, which is very impressive to me. She was able to uh, to follow the tutorial videos. They had, they had Polish-proofed them. And now I get I have some badass chinos that make my butt look high, tight, and right. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, this week, my listeners get a, any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com. That's right, time suckers. Just go to Indochino.com, use the code TIMESUCK at checkout, get 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. 
uh, which is the best price for shipping. That's Indochino.com, promo code TIMESUCK, any premium soup, just $3.59, free shipping. Once you go custom, you do not go back. Link in the episode description or push the Indochino button uh, within the TimeSuck website or app. Now let's talk about getting it on. Let's talk about getting horny a couple hundred years ago. Napoleon was into sexting uh, way before it was cool or even remotely convenient. He sexted with his first wife, Josephine, uh, by pen and paper, and then those notes would travel back and forth via horse and boat. Actually, say back and forth. They just traveled uh, two. One, more of a one way, as we're going to find out. Uh, the future emperor had to be a, a very patient fapper, as did a lot of people back then. His romantic life consisted mainly of two wives and a third engagement. He also had some mistresses, but maybe not as many uh, mistresses as other successful and powerful French men, because it was reported that, that, that a lot of women uh, found him a little off-putting. His second wife, Archduchess uh, Mary Louise, is believed to have said something to the effect that the mere sight of him would be the worst form of torture. So, you know, dude wasn't for everybody, which I, which I get. Believe me, I get that. Uh, his first wife, Josephine, well-known aristocrat in Paris. She was the embodiment of, of French party culture, like an old-timey Paris Hilton. Uh, Josephine was six years older than Napoleon. Already had two teenagers by the time they met. So like an older Paris Hilton. Uh, he was he was immediately smitten with her. She didn't think he was uh, completely repulsive, at least not initially. Uh, he was powerful and persistent, and she ended up marrying him. Uh, Josephine was the widow of another revolutionary, Alexander de uh, Beauharnais, who had been imprisoned and beheaded, as so many people were at that time, by way of the guillotine. She was also arrested in prison and almost beheaded, uh, escaped with her head when the French Revolution's reign of terror ended. Uh, when Josephine met Napoleon in 1795, she was already the mistress of a man who was arguably the most powerful Frenchman in England, Paul Francois Jean Nicolas Barras. Really hope that son of a bitch didn't insist on uh, being addressed by his full name. All right, these these guys. Can I just can I call you Paul? No, you may no. You you may call me Paul or Francois Jean Nicolas Jacques Pierre Barras as whole. Um, and then randomly, this dude encouraged Napoleon to marry his mistress. Super weird to me. Just, you know, how does that, how does that happen? Hey, dude. Hey, man. Can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? Can I get real with you for a second? Look, look, bro. I'm tired of banging this chick on the side, all right? Is there any way you could please marry her so I can get her off of my dick? Um, I don't know how that happens. So what sort of husband was Napoleon? Uh, well, he certainly traveled a lot for work with all his conquering and such. He also wrote a lot of interesting love letters, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, Josephine would go on to create a number of public scandals for Napoleon, excessive partying, a very public affair with another officer early in the marriage. Uh, he may, Napoleon may have convinced her to shorten her name, which is kind of a weird thing, uh, but he clearly didn't control her. Uh, Josephine was, was also a bit on the fiscally irresponsible side. And by a bit, I mean, instead of buying some expensive shoes, she would buy one of the most lavish palaces in France. Furnish it with gold, everything, then buy expensive shoes. Uh, Josephine and Napoleon were married in a civil ceremony on March 9, 1796. Two days later, Napoleon deploys for war, and then he would write to her often, and it is some of the creepiest shit ever. Uh, partly because of the actual words he writes. Could be the translation, to be fair. Partly because of his massively wavering emotions, and mainly because, uh, keep this in mind, newlywed Josephine is not answering any of these letters. Uh, which is so weird to me. Somebody just keeps writing over and over and they don't get back to them. Like you ever, you ever dated somebody and, and then um, and then you end it and then have them continue to text you? It's so sad every time. And it, and it gets creepy when like after months, you know, you look at the text uh, thread and it's this long, insane series of just unanswered messages. 
What you doing, sexy? Just thinking about you. We should meet up soon. Nothing. No reply. Nothing for a week. Hey, saw you were just in Kansas City. I was uh, I was there the week before. <laughs> LOL. Anyways, just thinking of you. Hope you're well. Nothing for like a month. Hey, do you want to see Queens of Stone Age? I know you'd love them. I have an extra ticket. Hit me up. Nothing for like two months. And just a series of drunk texts late one night. So fucked up how you never get back to me. You could at least say hi. 15 minutes later, just, I saw you read my message. Text me back, asshole. 30 minutes later, fuck you. You're so dead to me. And two days later, hey, sorry about the other night. Too much vodka. You know how I get. LOL, hope you're well. <laughs> and just on and on and on for months. Uh, I have had this type of thing happen. No part of me understands why people do that. If they're not writing, if you're listening, if they're not writing you back, from move on. Move on with your life. It's over. Uh, or I guess if that doesn't work for you, take some solace in the fact that Napoleon was just as tenacious and creepy as you are. Uh, remember that romance novel Napoleon wrote? It was a fictional account of his life with a, with a previous lover, a former fi- fiancé, Desiree Clary. Uh, apparently, it read something like the following snippets of his correspondence with Josephine. In one letter, Bonaparte writes, I hope before long to cross you in my arms and cover you with a million kisses, burning as though beneath the equator. Beneath the equator, million kisses. Ah, I think he's thinking about going down on her. I think that's what he wants to do, right? Uh, in a different letter, uh, as he's begging her to join him in Milan, he says, I shall be alone and far, far away, but you are coming, aren't you? You are going to be here beside me, in my arms, on my breasts, on my mouth. Take wing and come, come a kiss on your heart, and one muscle down lower, much lower. He for sure wants to go down on her. Can't wait for that cunnilingus. Much lower down. Uh, maybe he wants to toss her salad. I don't know. Maybe he. Maybe he's looking for that back pussy. Uh, yikes, by the way. Rim jobs at the end of the 18th century. No, thank you. That does not appeal to me on any level. I mean, they had baths, but they didn't have hot showers. They didn't have antibacterial soap. And they didn't have Brazilian waxes. Another letter reads, How happy I will be if I could assist you at your undressing. The little firm white breast, the adorable face, hair tied up in a scarf. And then his letters start to, start to hint at a little bit of clinginess. Your tears rob me of reason and inflame my blood. Believe me, it is not in my power to have a single thought which is not of thee or a wish I could not reveal to thee. Historians seem to agree that these explicit letters that he's continually sending, excuse me, these are like a few snippets from so many letters. And uh, they think it turned Josephine off just too much, Right. Uh, and then the drunken text by horse continued, you know, I, I write you, uh, my beloved one, very often. You write very little. You are wicked and naughty, very naughty. As much as you are fickle, it is unfaithful to uh, deceive a poor husband, a tender lover. Napoleon continues to write and write. She continues to not write back. Uh, without Josephine, without the insurance of her love, what is left uh, uh, upon the earth, he says, but like all good romantic correspondence involving a dictator, uh, things do get a bit more aggressive when he gets pissed off, you know. Adieu, adorable Josephine. One of these nights, your door will open with a great noise. As a jealous person, you will find me on your arms. Right? Sounds a little like a threat. He's not happy. Continues to write, I don't love you, not at all. On the contrast, I detest you. He writes, you're a naughty, gawky, foolish slut. Uh, what is this whole time? Uh, it turned out he just been sent him to the wrong address. <laughs> right? Finally, that one makes it the right one. Or like, like some other ladies just getting these messages over. Like, who is this creepy? You ever done that? You ever text somebody several times? 
start to get really pissed out, pissed off, and then find out you just had the number wrong, like they, like they changed numbers, or you wrote the number down wrong, or whatever, and you've just been texting the wrong person. I have also done that. Super embarrassing, right? Really, just fucking ghosting me now? It's fucked up, dude. This is not this is not the right number. I don't know who you are. Please stop texting me. <laughs> uh, awkward. But that's not what's happening here. She just did not feel like writing her husband. Uh, he's starting to creep her out. No responses after so many attempts. Uh, he writes his brother after his uh, about his failing marriage. He writes the veil is torn. It is sad when one in the same heart is torn by such conflicting feelings for one person. I need to be alone. I am tired of grandeur. All my feelings have dried up. I no longer care about my glory. At 29, I've exhausted everything. It's really hitting him hard. This, this last letter causes uh, a major embarrassing issue for Napoleon. The British intercept it and publish it in all of their newspapers. How embarrassing. Like this, this is basically the, the 18th century equivalent of like a, like a dick pic getting leaked out to the press, right? Like a little dick pic. Uh, his enemy, an entire nation, having a good laugh at his expense. Uh, he's ridiculed pretty hard by the, by the British people. Uh, British humor at one time, literally a weapon of war. Uh, Napoleon's marriage would continue for several more years despite constant cheating on her part and her not giving him a son, uh, which is interesting. You, you know, you can be one of the most powerful men in the world and still have a wife who despises you. In January of 1810, after 14 years of marriage, Napoleon wants out, but a divorce will invoke the ire of the church. So instead, he has their marriage annulled on a strange religious technicality. Apparently, uh, somebody was wearing the wrong funny hat at the wedding, uh, which was they, after a lot of exploration, they found out that that was a loophole and they could void the marriage. Uh, Napoleon would go on to marry a second time in March of 1810. This time he married Maria uh, Ludovica Leopoldina Fra- Francisca uh, Therese uh, Josefa Lucia. Not kidding. All of those names, uh, words in one name, a.k.a. Uh, Marie Louise, Duchess of Parma, daughter of the Archduke Francis of Austria, uh, a shape-shifting, multi-dimensional, lizard Illuminati member of the Austrian Habsburg royal dynasty, as David Icke has been trying to tell us. And again, got the names. Uh, uh, her father, Francis II, actually was the very last uh, Holy Roman Emperor. That's why conspiracy theorists get all into the Habsburgs and... All this stuff. Uh, and, and a nice enough guy to be uh, end up being known by one name. Uh, fun fact about this guy. Napoleon will end up beating Francis's ass at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1806, and the loss will cost this guy his Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon will end it. And then four years later, Napoleon takes his daughter. Ain't that a bitch? I can only imagine how much this dude hated Napoleon. He had to have known about the old love letters, right? In a much more proper time, he knew that this dude, the man who had beaten him in battle, the man who had taken his his his, his crown, was now going to cover his, his daughter's vagina in a million kisses. But enough about Napoleon's love life. Back to what Napoleon does best, firing cannons at people. Uh, now we return to Napoleon's buddy military career. So as I stated earlier, Bonaparte left for Italy two days ago after he was married to Josephine. Uh, during Napoleon's voracious letter-writing campaign to his not-at-all-interested first wife, he was also in charge of fighting his neighbors in the name of France, in this case, uh, Italy and Austria. He was appointed the commander-in-chief of the French Army of Italy in March of 1796. Uh, 27 at this time, his, his military, military reputation is growing. Uh, and much, of, much of his infamy, his growing infamy, comes from a battlefield brutality, the weapons and tactics of Napoleon's time were quickly changing, and, and Napoleon uh, passionately embraced new, more destructive methods of warfare. His willingness to cross moral lines that had been drawn for centuries gave him a huge advantage in war. Uh, the army Napoleon was put in charge of 
And this uh, Italian and Austrian military conquest campaign in 1796 was a poorly fed, ill-equipped lot, far shy of the 43,000 men he'd been initially promised. However, Napoleon, a man who believed, uh, you know, he had uh, success as part of his destiny, uh, he knew he could win despite uh, a shortage of men, despite them being hungry, uh, if he brought up their morale. Soldiers, he said, you are naked, badly fed. Rich provinces and great towns will be in your power, and in them you will find honor, glory, wealth. Uh, Napoleon was one of those guys who was, you know, very pro-rape and pillage, right? We're going to kick some ass. You fucking do what you want to do to these villagers, you know? Take, take your spoils of war. Despite a lack of resources, Napoleon managed victory after victory against several much larger Austrian and allied armies. Without the normal provisions, his troops were lighter and moved through the Italian terrain quickly, although hungry and uh, very crankly. Uh, it was a complicated campaign. At one point, the French directory proposed to divide Napoleon's army, place another general in charge of a uh, second contingent. And Napoleon, though, sent two letters back to Paris in which he didn't formally threaten to resign, but made it clear he didn't want any interference. He's the commander, and uh, he doesn't want his forces divided, and uh, you know he might just uh, abandon this whole thing if, if you try to make him do that. The directory backs down. Napoleon continues his siege of Italy. Throughout the campaign, Bonaparte would plant trees of liberty to symbolize his revolution taking root in Europe. Dude understood the power of, of symbolism, right? Uh, he knew how to, how to sell a dream. He knew that it was important for people to see things, um, see reminders of success. In the end, he, he would get his first victory as a commander. Yeah, he was basically undefeated in this campaign. Uh, Bonaparte's army would take over 150,000 enemy prisoners. They would conquer most of northern Italy, and Napoleon got the Austrians to submit uh, to France's negotiations, negotiations which gave Bonaparte and France control over thousands of miles of territory stretching from Belgium to Greece. Europe was now at peace for a few moments, kind of. Uh, peace was formalized with the Treaty of Camp Formio in late 1797, and then the, the countdown to more fighting began. Uh, through victory, Bonaparte became the de facto ruler of Italy at only 28 years old, and for much of 1797, he would negotiate as a sovereign with the Austrian emperor. Probably didn't hate that, right? He returned to Paris, a goddamn legend, uh, who was still having trouble with his lady. Uh, the French Revolution was turning France upside down while Napoleon was fighting Italy, and upon returning, Napoleon found himself agreeing with French nationalists who cried uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Uh, part of the reason Napoleon is remembered more than, say, other God-King wannabes throughout history is his ability to write, direct, and star in propaganda pieces. Uh, during his first campaign in Italy, he created newspapers in which he would write articles about himself uh, that would say things like, Bonaparte flies like lightning and strikes like a thunderbolt. Uh, how, how great would that be if you were like, if you were like an artist or, you know, like in this sense, military, but like what if you were like a, a musician, comic or whatever – and you also were in charge of like, you know, what videos get promoted on YouTube, uh, what programming goes on Comedy Central. And, um, you know, you can just put out like a, whatever kind of comedy special and just thunderous applause no matter what. You play it seven times a day. You're always the featured video on YouTube. And it's always like you also control like have uh, bots just putting nothing but amazing comments. Even if you were truly terrible, if you just did that long enough. There's no way you wouldn't become just incredibly famous, right? He, he did that like a military equivalent of that. Uh, he would commission paintings of himself as an almost mythical character. He would skewer his reports from the battlefield to uh, show his valor while diminishing all the all the raping and pillaging. He's kind of keep that quiet. Uh, Napoleon's control over his own image and myth was brilliant. He made sure he was depicted as God's chosen hero, the savior and protector of France. He would dictate every detail 
uh, of paintings he'd commissioned for his victories. Yeah, I mean, Hillary, I mean, Hillary, history really is often uh, written by the winners. And Napoleon knew that better than most. He was a brilliant battlefield tactician and uh, an even better at hype. I was thinking for like a modern kind of sports celebrity analogy. It's like he was like LeBron James if LeBron had Kim Kardashian's Instagram abilities. She has over 120 million followers, by the way, on Instagram. Over 120 million. As Nostradamus predicted when he prophesied about the apocalypse. Uh, LeBron... Someone who, in my opinion, has more tangible talent in one finger than she has in her entire body, roughly 48 million followers, right? If he had her, he'd have like a, he'd have somehow, he'd have somehow more followers than there are people on earth. Uh, to understand Napoleon's transition from kick-ass military leader and propagandist to emperor of most of Europe, we need a bit more context about this French Revolution and the reign of terror. So much going on in this little period of history. The French Revolution is, is the backdrop, right, for Bonaparte's rise to power. Uh, during much of his, uh, the revolution, the, the leader of the French directory is a man named Maximilien Robespierre. Uh, Maximilien of Robespierre had argued that he needed to suspend liberty to save liberty, and Napoleon agreed. And as expected, people didn't really like having their liberty suspended. Uh, people revolted. Uh, Robespierre's government fell. In the end, they cut his head off with the very guillotine that he had terrorized France with. Very much a, a live by the guillotine, die by the guillotine uh, story. Uh, there, there's a lot to the French Revolution. I'm not going to go super deep into detail because that deserves its own suck. And, and even now, it'd be hard to get all the necessary info in. Just know it basically was several complicated coups, one after another. That repla- you know, so, so the government is constantly being replaced. The revolution would run from May 5th, 1789 to November 9th, 1799. And it was a lot of fun. It was basically like a big Mardi Gras celebration with a lot of wine, plenty of beads, so many boobs just flapping out in the streets. It was glorious. Hail Josefina! Uh, no, uh, it was terrible. Uh, Replace boobs and beads with so much blood. The fighting started partly because a lot of French people, they didn't like the tyranny of the, of the monarchy. Uh, so they went on to kill each other in the streets for a while, only to put Napoleon in power, uh, who by the end essentially became, uh, you know, uh, another king and formed an, a different type of monarchy. It was this, uh, God dang it, this is exactly why we started this in the first place. Now we're back here again. Uh, the French Revolution began with the with the way the French government Uh, or began over the way the French government collected taxes. Essentially, if you were rich or a member of the clergy, you didn't pay them. Uh, If you were anyone else, you paid the fuck out of them. Uh, At the end of the 18th century, France found itself deeply in debt, mostly from financing the American Revolution, uh, which, uh, thank you, by the way. I know Americans, uh, some of them, love to talk about saving France's ass in World War II, tend to forget that that, that France saved our asses in the American Revolution. So appreciate it. Sorry if I fuck up 70% of your super stupid names. Uh, Louis XVI uh, was spending half of his wealth on the debt from the war, and it bankrupted him in France. This, this lack of funds also coincided uh, with multiple seasons of bad weather that hurt food production, which left France broke and hungry, which is a bad combo for morale. Good recipe for a revolution. I feel like uh, people, uh, you know, the poor historically will put up with a lot of shit from the rulers. They'll take beatings, unfair taxes, Sometimes they'll put up with getting their land taken from them. They'll even uh, tolerate various forms of indentured servitude. But starvation? Nah. That seems to be the uh, straw that breaks the uh, poor people's back, right? Uh, Because hanger. Hanger is real. Mass hanger usually equals an uprising. Uh, With all the uh, unrest in France, King Louis XVI assembles what is known as the Estates General. The Estates General? In June of 1789, consisting of three estates or classes to convene in Versailles. The nobles in one, the clergy in another, all the working class schmucks in the third. 
they all gather to figure out how to reform the government, get France out of financial trouble, and make everybody happy. They're all supposed to work together, rich and poor alike, to figure everything out, and that's a nice thought, but it didn't happen. Uh, the king decided to lock the uh, not-cool kids, the poor and the landless, out of the meeting and uh, make their presence basically symbolic and not really listen to their frustrations uh, you know, uh, about bearing the brunt of the tax burden. Well, despite being shut out, the commoners continued to meet up. Uh, they meet in some tennis, tennis courts, uh, then some other locations. They refuse to leave until the king takes them seriously. They start drafting up legislation for a new government. They form what becomes known as the National Guard. They essentially organize themselves into a militia wearing the colors that now make up the French flag, red, white, and blue, just like ours. Uh, less than a month later, on July 14th, uh, now known in France as Bastille Day, the commoners decide to attempt to overthrow the French monarchy. They storm first a hotel in Paris looking for guns, and then the Bastille in Paris, a fortress— uh, being used at the time as a, uh, a political prison. Not many people are actually staying there at the time, but they, they rescue seven prisoners. They load up on guns. And in response to this rebellion, August 4th, 1789, the French National Assembly is like, hey, guys, wait a minute. Hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Did you say you wanted less taxes? Oh, we just, <laughs> we didn't hear you correctly. We get it now. So let's put an end to the silly rioting, okay? Let's put an end to the weapon taking. Uh, the government, listens to some of their demands, abolishes huge pillars of French life like tithing, noble privilege, unequal taxation, feudal rights, massive shift uh, that culminates on August 26th with the National Assembly's Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. This is the king's attempt uh, to give every French citizen liberty, prosperity, and security while also remaining king. So Louis XVI is still king, but he has to concede a lot of his king power. Uh, then in October of 1789, a rumor was spread that the queen, Marie Antoinette, is holding grain in the palace of Versailles. And uh, King Louis is reported to have said, oh, fuck me. First Versailles and now this? God damn it, I, I, I don't like it. Let it be known that I do not care for any of this. Somebody scream that after blasting some trumpets or some shit. Now, he didn't say that, but he wasn't happy. And then he really wasn't happy when a massive group of armed peasant women known as uh, the Women's March stormed the palace and forced the king and queen to move 12 miles away to Paris. Hey, Lucifina, they got him a... You know, uh, take away some of their more royal powers, but he's still king. They're still, still king and queen. Uh, things are shifting away from a regular monarchy, though, to a constitutional monarchy. Uh, and then France continues to argue and riot, and things start to slide further uh, into a, a true civil war. Uh, during a gathering of one group of revolutionaries, because there's numerous revolutionaries thinking that I know best, we could do things this way. One of them is known as the Jacobins. Uh, French National Assembly troops kill 50 Jacobins, and that sends France uh, in general into an uproar. Uh, the National Assembly, uh, they were also revolutionaries. They were a group that comprised that third estate, the commoners who met at the tennis court, the people who stormed the Bastille. And now they're killing other revolutionaries? Not good. Things start to get really complicated. On August 27, 1791, the Declaration of uh, Pilnitz occurred. Uh, basically, the other kings and sovereigns around Europe not excited to see what was happening in France. France had been annoying for a long time to them, you know, constantly starting battles and shit. But they didn't they didn't want people to get the wrong idea in their countries. If they see France's people overthrow their monarchy, they're like, shit, we could be next. Right? They like being kings and queens. They got nervous uh, about a revolution. So they decide uh, to the, to meet and, and make uh, and support, you know, the, the French monarchy. Then the French National Assembly, who still hadn't overthrown Louis XVI, they work with him to invade Austria to plunder Austria's wealth and steal their grain, and that pisses off some of the kings trying to help Louis. You know, like the, like the king of Austria, who, by the way, was Francis II, father of Napoleon's future second wife, guy who got fucked over by France in so many ways. 
Uh, this attack on Austria leads Prussia to align with Austria to fight the French. King Louis uh, offered his support to Prussia then. He was like, hey, man, that shit with Austria, that was the poor people's idea. That wasn't mine. I look, I'm just trying to survive. I'm having to make a lot of deals. Things are crazy over here. Help me out, bro. Let's squash these peasant fucks and, and keep them from raiding anyone else's treasure and grain. So sorry. Well, doing that makes Louis look like a traitor to the revolution because he was. He didn't like the revolution. So then the National Assembly takes away all the power from the monarchy and calls for another constitution. This time, the people are able to vote in new elections. Um, well, uh, at least the men people anyway. Sorry, lady suckers. Uh, also, the Assembly has a trial for Louis XVI, and they elect to remove his head from his neck by way of guillotine. His famous queen, Marie Antoinette, who famously did not say, let them eat cake, and so many other nobles also get put to death this way. The execution of the royal family in 1793 would spark a, a period of more chaos in the French Revolution known as the Reign of Terror. Hard to pinpoint exactly uh, the day the Reign of Terror began, but historians cite September 5th, 1793. This was the day that a French asshole ended the French assembly by saying, quote, let's make terror the order of the day. Right? This is when the story becomes a real-life fucking purge movie. Uh, these people, after executing the royal family, think, this feels good. <laughs> I like this. Why stop here? Let's kill so many of these motherfuckers. Uh, they were bloodthirsty. They were drunk with power. Terror did become the order of the day, and, and eventually uh, uh, 16,000 heads would roll by way of guillotine. Uh, you know, roughly 16,000. The, the, the passage by the French National Convention of the Law of Suspects was a, was a major part of this coming chaos. The Law of Suspects now made it cool to kill enemies of the state, whether they were declared rebels or just suspected rebels. Under this law, you weren't innocent until proven guilty. You were guilty until proven innocent. Which I gotta say, uh, reminds me of the growing witch hunt culture of today. Uh, right? When like one person can make an online accusation about somebody else, no trial, no scrutiny, no cross-examination, and suddenly that person's just guilty. At least in the court of public opinion. I mean, I guess we're, we're not literally cutting people's fucking heads off based on unfounded accusations. Not yet, but got to be careful with that shit. When discussing the, uh, the new law of suspects and the subsequent executions, Maximilian Robespierre said it was nothing more than speedy, severe, and inflexible justice. That's one way to justify the purge. I wonder if he thought that when his head would later roll. Uh, two factions of thought emerged during this reign of terror. There was one group who didn't want to stop the killings, but instead uh, sought moderation. Maybe we should, you know, have a little better better trials. Maybe slow down just a touch. And then there was another group who was like, more death, more death, more heads, make it happen. Uh, in a fun twist of history, the leaders of both groups end up getting their heads cut off. Uh, to make things even more interesting, the National Assembly turns on Maximilian Robespierre, uh, and he and 21 of his followers are, you know, guillotined. It's chaos. Chaos. One day you're leading the rebellion. The next day you're looking back at your body as your head hits the fucking ground after being brutally and quickly cut off. Uh, and it is thought, by the way, that you can retain consciousness for at least four seconds after having your head lopped off thanks to some weird decapitation research some Dutch scientists did with mice in 2011. Those four seconds, they have to be uh, not only the last four seconds of your life, but the longest. Right? How surreal. Just, oh, shit. That's my body. That's my whole body up there. And I'm down here. Yeah, I'm tired. Um, so in summary, during the revolution, political dis dissidents killed, plus the king and the royal family killed, ton of nobles, uh, ton of nobles killed, uh, the leaders of factions that were down with the killing also killed, the guy who was in charge of most of the killing also killed. Well played, friends. Very thorough revolution. Um, after mopping up the rivers of blood from the reign of terror, the revolution would be pulled back a bit. 
the reign ended in July 1794, would claim between 18,000 and 40,000 lives. And then another new constitution is drafted. And then this time it, uh, it ends up being super nice to rich people. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? All this death and chaos to basically get kind of back to where they started. Rich people never underestimate how good they are at staying rich. It's very impressive. And then this new constitution also doesn't last. Number of coups occur. The French continue their revolution. That's why the French Revolution is so famous. It was just a series of so much fucking chaos. Like, it was like a, a thousand revolutions packed into one revolution. And then finally, Napoleon makes his move and is pronounced the first consul of France, which basically meant he was dictator-ish. He's like dictator light. And then yet another new constitution is needed. Uh, great time to be a person, by the way, who gets paid to write out copies of constitutions. Oh, man, a lot of job security, a lot of work. Uh, so like I said, they, they began the revolution with the dictator, a king, and then when it's all over, they have another dictator in power, military dictator. Okay, let's jump back a bit now. Let's jump into some military conquest. Let's jump, uh, or actually let's jump ahead. Let's not jump back. Let's go ahead. 1798, follow Napoleon into Egypt right after a word from today's final sponsor. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses. Great Courses Plus. I'm always trying to become a smarter version of myself, and that's why I love watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. There's so much information available on the streaming service uh, from some of the best college professors across so many areas of interest, like ancient Mesopotamia, astrophysics, forensic history, just to name a few. Uh, I've learned so much from The Great Courses Plus. Lately, I've been enjoying The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. Lecture 23... Uh, covers later plague outbreaks that would occur all the way up until 1666. And then we will soon see uh, some smaller outbreaks occurred uh, in the time of Napoleon would affect some of his battles. So just interesting to get more context that uh, that helps understand, you know, even other sucks that have nothing to do with the plague. Um, I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. So, so I've worked on a special limited time offer for time suckers. Right now, you can get a free t- trial. Plus, lock in their low lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. It's available for a limited time at a special URL. Get your free trial plus 50% off your monthly plan now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description, sponsor link button in the Timesuck app and on the website. Now let's get to Egypt. Uh, always hungry for advancement, glory, and fucking with the British, Napoleon sets his sight on Egypt. His mission is to block British trade routes uh, to India via the Nile and to raise funds by plundering the mythical lands and all their treasures, you know, the lands of the pharaohs. Uh, Bonaparte was also interested in the mysteries and secrets of Egypt. He sought as a way to strengthen his legend, right? His God, King Destiny. He said, Europe is a molehill. There were never great empires or revolutions except in the Orient, right? And this guy is fascinated with Alexander the Great. He knew that Alexander the Great, you know, kicked ass in Egypt. He wants to do the same thing. In June of 1798, Napoleon, on his way to Egypt, decides to sack the little island nation of Malta, uh, give it to France. Most of that siege takes just a day. Pretty small place without much loss of life on either side. He, he takes over the capital city of Lavalette. Uh, I got to make it to Malta someday, by the way. Tiny island nation in the Mediterranean, beautiful. Less than half a million people total, been inhabited since roughly 6,000 BCE, so much history. One of the smallest countries in the world, also one of the most densely populated, less than 125 square miles in size. Smallest island nation, by the way, for random trivia, even I know we're getting a little off track just for a second, the island of uh, Nauru. The Republic of Nauru in the South Pacific, just over eight square miles, less than 12,000 people. It's its own country. More random trivia, tri- trivia on top of trivia. This little tiny island has the highest rate of, rate of obesity in the world. 97% of the dudes there, 93% of the women are medically obese. So if you're average sized, 
and you're frustrated. You're not just getting checked out as much as you'd like to on the beach. Get your ass to get your ass to the Nauru, and you could uh, you could be a swimsuit model. Back to France. After licking malt in the afternoon, Napoleon continues to Egypt, much like his hero Alexander the Great. Uh, Bonaparte wanted to follow in his footsteps. Right? What better way to to do that than to conquer Alexandria, the city named after him, with between thirty five thousand and thirty eight thousand troops, known as the Army of the Orient, and an entire French fleet. Napoleon does just that. He arrives in Alexandria to find that it's not actually Egyptians who are running Egypt right now, but Muslim warriors known as the Ma- uh, Mameluk. The Mamelukes. Uh, Alexandria was taken with little resistance. The Mamelukes uh, have a unique story and will continue to play a role in his Egyptian campaign after their defeat. Uh, quick note on the Mamelukes. In the 13th century, the Egyptian sultan purchased 12,000 slave boys from the Caucasus Mountains near Armenia and raised them to be an elite fighting force and trained them so well they overthrew him. Ah, Damn it. Uh, And then they ruled Cairo for the next several hundred years. So note to self, do not purchase. I'm going to cross that off my to-do list right now. Do not purchase 12,000 Armenian slave boys. Do not raise them to be an elite fighting force. Glad I I found that info. Uh, The Mamelukes were uh, fierce warriors who were fearless fighters. They believed that they would be instantly transported to paradise if they were killed in battle. But Napoleon still whooped them. Uh, After Alexander, Napoleon led his soldiers to Cairo. And learned a little more than he wanted to about how terrible it was to move troops through the Egyptian desert. Uh, they marched through land that could hit high temperatures of 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Today's modern travelers are told to drink a quart of water every hour, wear light clothes and hats. Well, the French had the hats, but were not dressed light and didn't have enough water. They were, they were dressed in thick wool uniforms and they didn't even carry water bottles. Napoleon was a brilliant tactician and commander, but he did not really care about the uh, what hardships Physically, his men had to endure during the fighting. His poor soldiers spent three weeks in the sand and heat with limited rations on top of not nearly enough water. Uh, They were also harassed and attacked by Bedouins, those Arabic uh, nomads. Uh, The soldiers suffered from starvation and dehydration as the hot sands burned their feet, irritated their throats. Some soldiers broke down, went insane, just tore off their uniforms, just fucking ran out, died in the desert. Uh, Some soldiers also dumped out their rations, too thirsty to eat their dry grain cakes and dehydrated and died. Soldiers began to see mirages. They'd have visions of bodies of water in the near distance only to find uh, that there was none. There were several suicides. When they finally did come across a well, it'd be drained in minutes. And then by the end of the journey, dozens of soldiers would die of thirst, you know, just laying around these dry wells. Uh, When Napoleon's army finally makes it to the Nile, the soldiers break ranks. They just dive into the water and they drank and float for hours, which ends up killing so many more of them, right? They find watermelon patches. They gorge themselves. And then a lot of them come down with dysentery and die. Quite literally a very shitty three weeks. Good old McGill's pop. Just popping off French buttholes. Blowing off left and right. Pooping into the Nile. Uh, the demoralized, and that's a callback to a, a lie from an old episode for new listeners. Uh, uh, the demoralized and barely alive French troops arrived near the pyramids at Giza, not far from Cairo, on July 13, 1798. Uh, met by 15,000 uh, Marmaluk warriors, and despite being sick and weary, uh, they kicked their fucking asses. In fact, like a cat playing with a mouse, Napoleon toyed with the enemy army to get a sense of what might be awaiting him in Cairo. On July 21st, uh, 1798, Bonaparte led his 35 to 50,000 French troops and 400 ships to Egypt for the Battle of the Pyramids. Napoleon loved to give his battles exciting names. Bonaparte's uh, army is said to have went up against 40,000 Egyptians. At least that's Napoleon's count. Historians seem to think it was less than half of that. Uh, The British think it was six guys in a camel. Uh, Propaganda makes history hard sometimes. Uh, 3 p.m. 
on July 21st, 6,000 uh, Marmelukes uh, charge or Marmelukes uh, charge the French army. I keep wanting to say Marmaduke. <laughs> it's not that. And things go really, really well for them. Uh, almost every single one of these fighters instantly transported to paradise just like they wanted. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, these guys are no match for Napoleon's superior tactics. He organizes his troops into simple formations known as the square. Puts all of his troops into five squares. They slaughter the Marmelukes. Uh, the square, which was more of a rectangle, actually, featured riflemen on the outside, cavalry on the inside, artillery, uh, artillery, uh, whatever, on the outside corners. V- virtually the entire army uh, that faced the French that day were mowed down in just a few hours. Five to 6,000 men kill- killed in a few hours. The French lost a, a total uh, of 30 soldiers with several hundred others wounded. I mean, this was a, a, a landslide victory. The French soldiers, who were promised riches, stripped the bodies of the fallen foes for jewels, gold, and their fancy weapons. After the battle, the Egyptian leader, uh, Murad Bey, burned his remaining fleet before fleeing from Napoleon. The smoke created by the burning ships caused even more panic in Cairo, and Bedouin mercenaries who were hired by the Marmelukes to protect the citizens of Cairo began to steal and kill the people they were hired to protect. Caused a little anarchy over there. Uh, July 25th, 1798, the French march into Cairo, a city now essentially that belongs to Napoleon. Uh, He was blown away by the architecture of Cairo. It was under Islamic rule at the time. And instead of trying to convert the city to Christianity, uh, according to folklore, uh, Napoleon tried to tell them that he wasn't Christian and that he and his men actually wanted to become Muslim. Uh, They didn't. He just wanted them to think they did so it'd be easier to rule them. A couple problems with this, though. A couple problems with convincing the local Muslim population is Islam, uh, uh, Islamic law forbids alcohol and it requires men to be circumcised. And Napoleon's troops, they weren't quite ready uh, to cut some skin off their dicks and stop drinking to make things easier for their fearless leader. You know, just Seriously? You, you almost kill us in the desert when you forget about fucking water. Then we fight thousands of dudes who don't care if they live or die. And now you want us to stop celebrating and take some skin off our dicks. No wonder the British hate you. You're an asshole. Um, on August 1st, 1798, Napoleon and his men would end up uh, fighting a more formidable opponent than the, uh, 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 gosh dang it, the, the stupid word, than the Mamelukes. Uh, um in the Egyptian desert, they would actually end up going head-to-head uh, with none other than Hulk Hogan. Hulkamania's running wild, brother! Napoleon was like, what does that mean? Uh, Hulkamania? And then Hogan body-slammed some knowledge on him. He was like, I promised each and every Hulkamaniac when I went to that great battlefield in the sky, I would bring the WWF title with me, brother. And Napoleon was like, what is, what is this uh, WWF? And Hulk was like, negativity and Hulkamania, two things that don't go together, brother. What you gonna do when Hulkamania destroys you? And that's nonsense. But I, that was fun. That pumped me up. Hulkamania always gets me going. Uh, the legendary British Admiral Horatio Nelson had been hunting a Napoleon. So, so much better, though, if it was a time-traveling Hulk Hogan. But this, but this is still pretty good. In the summer of 1798, but hunt him down there. He didn't want, uh, you know, he's not going to just let uh, the French fuck up their trade routes. And on August 1st, he finds Napoleon. Uh, the Battle of the Nile would be a very one-sided fight between the French and the British. It would go down as the most decisive victory up until that point in European naval history. Nelson pile-drived Napoleon's fleet into fucking oblivion and stranded Bonaparte and his men in Egypt. Each side started off with 13 ships, and the British ended up with uh, 22 ships by the end. The French lost 9,000 men, and all their ships were either captured or destroyed. The British suffered uh, only roughly, uh, you know, 200 to 900 dead, depending on the source. I mean, just a blowout victory. The battle also cost Napoleon Little Malta. The British kicked them the fuck out uh, of the islands, now controlled the Mediterranean, which limited France's ability to uh, retaliate against the U.K., 
The loss of the Battle of the Nile was a huge loss for Napoleon. Historians agree that uh, the Abukir Bay was a poor place for him to have the French fleet lay anchor. For three months, French ships had remained exposed in the shallow waters of the poorly guarded port. The French admiral in charge of the fleet knew that, wanted it moved to deeper and safer waters, but Bonaparte insisted they stay. To crush Napoleon, Admiral Nelson threw out the gentlemen's rules of warfare at sea. Instead of lining up ships and firing until one side just gave up, the British admiral surrounded the anchored ships and pummeled them from all sides. Napoleon had his ship's cannons pointed towards the sea, so when the British trickled around behind him, they were just sitting ducks. A few historians have called this massacre Napoleon's Pearl Harbor. At one point in the battle, the world's largest ship at the time, the French Orient, caught fire and literally exploded. With 118 cannons and what I can only assume was a shit ton of gunpowder on board, the ship's explosion was supposedly heard up to 50 miles away. Pretty safe to say none of those soldiers and sailors had ever heard a noise that loud before. Despite this terrible loss, propagandist Napoleon was able to spin the battle in his favor. Uh, Despite losing his ships, uh, Bonaparte still had thousands of troops. And he also still had the 167 French scientists and scholars and artists he'd actually brought to Egypt to study uh, Egyptian culture. And since he wasn't going anywhere, he just decided, all right, let's make the best of the situation. And he founds the uh, Egyptian Scientific Institute, named himself vice president. The French academics and artists he brought over worked tirelessly to sketch, paint, record, discover everything they could about the ancient world of Egypt. Bonaparte himself was obsessed with the history of Egypt, and he, and he turned uh, being stranded into a great excuse to explore his curiosity. So much to explore, like the Great Pyramid, tallest building in the world at the time. It would remain the tallest building in the world until the French built the Eiffel Tower in 1888. Uh, Napoleon scientists pumped out a 24-volume description of Egypt that would be published in 1809, and these 24 volumes basically founded modern-day Egyptology. Uh, Egypt was a special place for Napoleon, but maybe not quite as special as parts of the internet believe. Some websites say he had a profound experience when he asked to be left alone in the king's chamber during a great uh, tour of the Great Pyramid. Uh, At least one website says uh, in that uh, chamber he met Illuminati aliens from another dimension. Most legitimate Napoleonic scholars don't think he even stepped foot inside the pyramids. Uh, Napoleon's greatest achievement in Egypt was probably his army's discovery of the Rosetta Stone in mid-July 1799. Uh, The Rosetta Stone is a 1,500-pound granite tablet that has an official decree about the Greek pharaoh Ptolemy V carved into it, right? Ptolemies, one of of those inbred Ptolemy bastards we learned so much about in the Cleopatra suck. So much inbreeding, skinniest of skinny family trees. And uh, and the Rosetta Stone was was basically just a lot of pictures of the Ptolemies uh, fucking each other. Uh, No, no, the stone tablet was one of uh, many copies that were supposedly placed in every temple in Egypt at one time. And they were all written in three languages. That's what makes this thing so important. The languages carved into the stone are ancient hieroglyphics. Uh, and then also an almost as old Egyptian language called uh, Demotic. And also Greek, the language the French were familiar with. And this was the treasure of all treasures. Because now, uh, thanks to the, you know, uh, the, the hieroglyphics being translated on the stone into Greek... You know, they could, they could unlock the mysteries of all the other hieroglyphics. Uh, the Rosetta Stone was, a, was found by a French officer named Pierre-Francois Bouchard uh, while he was helping to rebuild a wall during the reconstruction of the town of Rosetta. The military sent the artifact to some French science guys who immediately started busting out those Greek phrase books. Uh, they decoded the stone before the British or the locals or both made them leave. Um, a task which was pretty hard considering there was a lot of damage done to the stone. It was missing a large section of hieroglyphics at the top and pieces from the other two languages, but they figured it out. Uh, By the end of Napoleon's run in Egypt, the French scientists had amassed one of the greatest collections of historical treasures ever seen. All these, you know, antiquity treasures. 
After Napoleon had left for France towards the end of the French occupation of Egypt, the British defeated the French, and the English went on to preserve and protect the Rosetta Stone, where it can be seen in the British Museum in London today. Okay, now back to battle. Still in Egypt, 1799, Napoleon and his army still stranded there. The locals rebel against their foreign oppressors in late 1799. Napoleon is taxing them to death to pay for his war efforts. On uh, October 21st, 1799, at 6 a.m., a large gathering of Egyptians began to attack the French. The French retaliate with a 12-hour cannon assault on the city's mosques and temples. Damage from those attacks can still be seen today. Uh, after Bonaparte re regained control of Cairo, he was off to start more wars in early March. Bonaparte's army marched across the Sinai Peninsula and into western Syria to a city called Jaffa. The French laid siege to the city from March 3rd to March 7th. It was a quick victory, but when Napoleon sent in his emissaries to negotiate Jaffa's surrender, the Jaffians uh, lopped off the Frenchmen's heads and displayed them on post for all to see. Uh, not smart. Bad move, guys. You just lost. You just got sieged. Not a solid plan to cut the heads off the guys negotiating your surrender. Right? Uh, how is that going to work out well for you? They're, it's not like their army is just going to leave after that. Just, oh, shit. They, they cut Jacques and Pierre's heads off? Oh, God. You know, I don't think they want to surrender. Okay. All right. All right. I wish they would have said something. Let's just pack up our stuff and get out of here. You know, they don't want us to be here. Now, when the French troops entered the city uh, after these beheadings, they go nuts. They rape and murder thousands. Uh, they gather up to 3,000 Jaffian troops, execute them with bayonets. They don't even want to waste bullets on them. The mythology says it took three days to kill them all, but they did it. Uh, they even hunted and executed those who tried to rum, run or swim away. Uh, the next target was a city further north called Acre. Uh, the French attacked it on March 20th. Acre was defended by the Ottoman Empire and had a strong defensive wall. The city was led by General uh, Jazar Pasha, known as the Butcher, and he had no interest in surrendering either. The French had two options to win this siege. They could put up some tents, hang out, they could starve the city of provisions, or they could attack the well-defended walls. Well, Napoleon chose to attack because the British were kind of uh, helping them get some provisions. They had uh, stocked them up. And, and this attack was brutal. Uh, over the siege, 9,000 French soldiers die. Many from battle, many others from an outbreak of bubonic plague. Fucking plague! The bodies of French soldiers had begun to stack up, and sadly, not one was catapulted inside the city. Come on, you guys! Load the Jacques! Aim the Jacques! Fire the Jacques! Uh, as the siege continues, Napoleon gets so low on weapons and ammo that he, uh, he starts paying troops to sneak onto the battlefield at night and recover huge cannonballs. Right? The bigger the cannonball, the, the more extra money they get. Uh, France would eventually abandon the siege, head back to Egypt. This would be Napoleon's first major land defeat. I mean, obviously, the British kicked his ass at sea. Uh, he ends up having to leave many of his sick and wounded uh, on the, on, behind an ochre. And uh, legend has it on the way back to Jaffa, he may have also decided to poison other sick and wounded soldiers, right? <laughs> These guys are kind of fucking slowing us down. Uh, let's, uh, let's poison if we can. Uh, history not clear on whether Bonaparte had his troops poisoned secretly or if they volunteered to drink the poison. I, I highly doubt that. Or even if there was poison. Because history is a tricky bastard when you're dealing with propagandists. And then Napoleon returns to Egypt as if he had won the battles, right? Ah, he knew how to, he, he knew how to spin shit. He spoke of only victory in the Middle East. Uh, you know, uh, many French citizens, uh, they bought his words when he traveled back to France. Many French were enthralled by the young general. He, he brought all his cool antiquities, treasures. You know, it was like his mythical trip to this land of pyramids and the Egyptian gods. Uh, later, Bonaparte would admit his, def uh, would admit, excuse me, his defeat in Acre uh, was a big disappointment and, and an important loss. He would later say, if I had not been defeated in Acre, I would co have conquered all of the East. 
Uh, during his time around the plague, at least according to legend, and again, it's hard to tell what's legend, what's not in this story, but supposedly Napoleon showed uh, some serious fearlessness to his troops, or I guess ignorance. Uh, at a medical hospital in Syria, he declared that the cause of the plague was fear and that the cure was courage. He demonstrated his courage by picking up a dead soldier from the floor, uh, a soldier who was covered in busted open plague boils, and he carried him to a more suitable resting place. You know, ah, see, it's not about, I'm fine. Dude, he did know how to inspire. Uh, he also clearly did not know dick about the plague or he would have never done that. Um, when Napoleon returned to Egypt, he learned that France was in political chaos. The French Revolution was uh, about to hand him the keys to the castle now and Bonaparte knew it. Problem was, he, he couldn't get his army home without his goddamn ships. Fucking ships! So he just snuck away uh, by himself. Uh, he didn't tell his army or even his replacement officer uh, he was going to be leaving and heading back to Europe. Didn't even tell his mistress. He left a letter and just hopped a boat back to France. And, and if you're wondering uh, what happened to the French army he left behind, they would eventually be brought uh, back to France by the British army after defeat in 1801. Uh, back in France, despite ditching his army in Egypt, Napoleon, he's received as a hero. He's a legend. Super famous. Has plays and paintings commissioned about his victories. Uh, he doesn't really talk about his losses. You know, he skips over leaving uh, troops, uh, that, that whole part of the story. Uh, focuses on the sports center highlights. Let's focus on the dunks, not on, not on the turnovers. Operation God King, almost complete. After a sneaky return to Paris, Napoleon helps plan a bloodless military coup to replace the existing French direct, uh, directory now in charge. It would go down as the coup of 18 Brimer, uh, uh, or Brimer, excuse me, Brimer, uh, Brimer being a month in a French calendar system extending from October 22 uh, to November 20th, uh, a French calendar system that Napoleon would soon replace, actually, with the one we use now. Bonaparte was immensely popular. He also had his popular brothers, Lucien and Joseph, uh, help him take over France. Bonaparte's plan was to get the directory to quit, to convince both houses of the French legislature, the Council of the Ancients, the Council of the 500, to make a new constitution, declaring him in charge. Uh, Lucien, his brother, who was the final president of the Council of 500, persuaded the council to meet at the Chateau de Saint-Cloud in the suburbs of Paris. Lucien was able to persuade the council then to move to a less populated location by falsely warning them of a Jacobin coup plot against them. Uh, this meeting was basically uh, for Napoleon and his army to show up and intimidate and threaten the remaining government. It almost didn't work. He fucked up his speech, I guess, talking about God of war, this, and follow me through the danger zone, that, and he's ridiculed by the council and they see through his plot. So then Napoleon, uh, you know, he's basically like, okay, okay, all right, if you don't like the speech, here's the deal. I'm going to fucking kill you. We're going to do this or I will fucking kill you. And they're like, oh, all right, okay, I do get that speech. Um, uh, they, they, they dissolve the directory now, replace it with the three-person consulate. Napoleon, of course, is declared first consul. He's in charge. He, be, he essentially becomes the or, uh, new dictator of France. Uh, many historians consider this the end of the Re French Revolution. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be long after this, through an amendment to the Constitution, that Napoleon would be, uh, become the first consul for life. And then later name himself emperor. Very Caesar-esque moves he is pulling now. He's a big fan of Caesar. This was a complicated time in France and Europe in general. But, but now the emperor could form an empire his own way. Okay. Now is a good time to look at one of Bonaparte's most significant contributions to history. And uh, uh, the Napoleonic Code. As emperor, he did actually seem to know how to run a country. What makes Napoleon a legend goes well beyond his battlefield wins. He contributed to a wide variety of fields. Right. Under his direction, France built world-class buildings, monuments, and bridges, pushed science, law, art, and founded many new schools, including the University of France in 1808. Perhaps more than anything, though, or at least for this segment of the show, uh, the most important thing he influenced was the way legal systems would run forever through a code he, we think he helped develop. 
Uh, he may have just taken credit, but we think he actually probably helped develop. Napoleon's new legal system would initially be called the Civil Code of the French. And then it was changed to the Napoleonic Code when Napoleon was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Does that, uh, how come that doesn't have my name in it? <laughs> no, no, no. Everything has my fucking name in it. Uh, Bonaparte's new law of the land was, was developed initially by a commission of four eminent jurists or law scholars. Other jurists would contribute a little later and Napoleon himself would contribute. Uh, historians debate to this day about how much he contributed. The author started writing this new code in 1801 and spent years getting it right. The, Napole the Napoleonic Code was put into effect on March 21st, 1804, and it would go on to inspire the legal systems of most of Europe, including Italy, the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Poland, pieces of Germany. Some 40 modern nations now owe pieces, owe pieces or more of their current legal systems to Napoleon uh, um, you know, including modern day France, the Napoleonic code was derived from bits of Roman law, the French revolution and other half-assed European attempts of governance. Uh, Napoleon's main objective was to make the law clearly written and easily accessible to all people of the state. This would be a huge upgrade from the legal system of the French totalitarian Kings and Queens within the feudal system of France. There were different privileges and special charters for Kings, the clergy and aristocrats. There weren't distinct laws, but hard to define customs and random decrees that were constantly changing. Uh, the feudal system often uh, consisted of whatever the monarchs wanted and or could get away with at the time. And this led to this crazy hodgepodge of 42 different legal systems existing at the same time in France. Napoleon tore them all up and replaced them with one easy to understand code. Uh, the Napoleonic Code was a very nice step forward towards a more just and modern legal system. Uh, people tended to like it more than a king just making shit up on the fly. Okay, so now on to the next phase of this crazy guy's life, or this guy's crazy life, rather. Uh, February 23rd, 1804, big day for Napoleon. Uh, he crowned himself emperor in front of Pope Pius VII at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Uh, he was the first Frenchman to become an emperor in a thousand years. Project God King was officially a success. Uh, Napoleon started off his rule by restructuring the French, French system of nobility, uh, created the Legion of Honor, and rewarded his favorite ass kissers uh, by choosing 3,000 people to play dressed up and become nobles. 3,000 people loyal to him. As a boy, remember, he dreamed of a meritocracy, and now he was kind of making one. Uh, he was picking people with strong leadership qualities to help uh, you know, run the country. He's uh, picking people with great military valor. But the main criteria was how loyal were they to him? Uh, mostly picking people based on loyalty. Uh, so I guess he, 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 you know, in a way, he... He kind of gave up on that meritocracy. Um, these people were a mixture of the revolutionary elite and his friends and family. And he, and he didn't give them any real power, by the way, outside of kind of being in the cool kids club and not getting taxed nearly as much as the common folks or not getting taxed at all. The idea of becoming nobles from the rank of common folk was unheard of. Sons of tanners and innkeepers and, and millers are now part of the French elite. Uh, Napoleon creates a hereditary monarchy, essentially, also, and places his family as heads of state all over his empire. So they're, they're right back to where they started. As we know, Napoleon understood the power of propaganda. His ability to rise to emperor was made possible by his ability to narrate his own mythology uh, and, and by crushing those who opposed him. He had a secret police force created to spy at his enemies and the people in general. He waged war on the press, reducing early versions of French newspapers from 60 and 1799 to just four by 1814. Uh, and, and of course, he continued to write and produce his own, uh, you know, legend through plays, articles, monuments, paintings. Napoleon was so aware of the power of print, he would say, this is a very interesting quote to me, four hostile newspapers are more to be feared than a thousand bayonets, right? And this is a guy who knew something about a bayonet. 
Uh, Napoleon was also very aware of the French people's what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude, so he quickly goes about reminding them of why he was in charge in the first place by waging fucking war. Let's get back to that. It's a matter of debate between historians, even to this day, whether Bonaparte was just a warmonger or a war hero. Most of them uh, seem to agree, though, that uh, despite uh, the reasons for going to war, he was real good at fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all in all, he ended up fighting in uh, 12 different military campaigns and anywhere in anywhere from 43 to 60 total battles. Records show he lost five to eight of those battles, depending on which historian you'd believe. 60 and eight, by the way, solid record for any type of fighter. That's a Hall of Fame win-loss spread for a boxer or MMA fighter. Uh, most of his losses would come at the end of his military career, but so would some of his most impressive victories. Uh, Napoleon ended up fighting in more battles than his uh, heroes Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Hannibal combined. He also started two major wars. One was on the Iberian Peninsula against Spain and Portugal, and one in Russia. Additionally, seven major war coalitions would be declared against him. All of them, uh, by the way, uh, you know, funded or led in some way by the British. In 1803, the era known as the Napoleonic Wars began when Britain declared war on France. Now that Napoleon had his crown, Britain and most of Europe became focused on taking it away from him. And to fund all of his fighting against the British, Napoleon made a monumental real estate deal to change the future of the world. It affected America greatly. Let's talk about the Louisiana Purchase for a second. The acquisition and quick sale of the Louisiana Territory is a really interesting part of Bonaparte's history that intertwines Napoleon and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I've heard of him. Um... Uh, it also includes the future of America, a selfish Spanish king, an ex-slave who became a victorious general during a Caribbean revolution. Basically, like all of history, if a thousand different little things didn't go exactly the way they did, the world would be drastically different today. To Napoleon, the Louisiana Territory was a wasteland, just uh, 828,000 square miles of worthless and uncharted swamps and forests. Uh, Louisiana had been claimed by the French way back in 1682 and named by the Spanish for the French king, Louis XIV. For over 100 years, it remained almost as almost empty uh, as far as Europeans go. It was populated by, you know, a lot of American Indians and just a few kind of French military outposts for the most part. After the French and Indian War in 1762, the French gave the entire territory away to Spain as a diplomatic gift for fighting with them. Uh, Spain didn't really want it. Um, when Napoleon took power, he didn't see the potential of Louisiana alone. But he did see the potential of the economic combo of Haiti and Louisiana. Bonaparte cared about Haiti. France was making a lot of money in Haiti, but they were having problems with Haiti. They were fighting back against French rule, and Louisiana was still owned by Spain. Napoleon thought if he could have that, he could build up troops on the Louisiana territory, and then those troops could help keep Haiti in check so they could keep making their money. So Napoleon went to work and secretly pressured the Spanish king, Carlos IV, to sign a treaty to swap Louisiana for a plush principality in, in French, uh, French-controlled northern Italy. As part of the seemingly sweet deal, Bonaparte promised he wouldn't sell the Louisiana Territory to any other countries that might end up fucking with Spain later. Uh, you can see where this is going. King Carlos IV, he was a man whose country was slipping out from under his leadership when he took the deal. Across the Atlantic in the U.S., a pretty sharp guy, fan of the spirit of the French Revolution by the name of Thomas Jefferson. He was president. He got wind of the secret treaty and the swap between the Spanish and the French for the Louisiana Territory. Uh, president Jefferson, not a fan of Napoleon, uh, possibly the complete opposite of him in temperament. He asked the minister from France about the secret French treaty with Spain. The minister said all that swampy bullshit belonged to Spain. TJ knew that wasn't the truth. So President Jefferson decided to bluff the French and Napoleon. As part of his bluff, he wrote a letter that he knew would get back to Napoleon. Without actually saying his intentions for the U.S. were to join the British in fighting the French, he implied it and his deception was believed by Bonaparte. Napoleon rethought his Louisiana deal. 
He didn't have time to fight America. He needed to focus on kicking all of Europe's ass. Finally, uh, uh, make the British pay. The emperor knew that war was on the horizon in Europe, big, big war, and he needed cash badly to fund his war efforts. Uh, perhaps the most crucial part of this whole situation was the French territory of uh, Saint-Domingue, uh, a.k.a. Haiti. Saint-Domingue uh, was known as the jewel of France and uh, responsible for two-thirds of all of France's foreign trade at its peak production. At one point, it was the richest colony in the world, at least in profit per square mile. Sugar was the main commodity. The African slave labor was the workforce. The French slave drivers were brutal and literally worked the slaves to death. By 1787, around 450,000 slaves were on the island. An estimated 40,000 slaves were brought to Saint-Domingue uh, in 1787 alone. Haiti had begun liberating itself from France starting in 1791. Uh, they would eventually gain their independence in 1804. Britain, of course, was backing the Haitian Revolution, fighting along uh, alongside the ex-slaves. Uh, Britain, man, constant thorn. Yeah, Napoleon's side. Uh, Emperor Bonaparte sent ships and the largest amount of troops overseas at the time, 27,000 men, to try to quell the Caribbean Rebellion. He thought it would take a few weeks. Uh, he was very wrong. The war in Saint-Domingue used guerrilla warfare tactics against Napoleon that they had uh, never encountered. The Haitian forces, led by ex-slave, now General Toussaint uh, Lavotier, was super mobile and they fought in small groups. They attacked the highly regimented French, right? They were fighting those squares by fighting behind trees and rocks fighting at night, uh, attacking and then fleeing and then poisoning the French soldiers' food and water supplies. And I'm always surprised this type of thing didn't happen more often in old-timey warfare. Like, like, whoever thought it was a great idea just to march your guys straight ahead in big lines right into cannon or musket or archer fire? You know, you know who thought that? Leaders who didn't give a fuck about losing thousands of men. Uh, their men were just cannon fodder. They were all too willing to sacrifice 10,000 men in an army of 30,000, for example, to kill like, you know, 20,000 of their enemy if they thought they could get the jump on them. So insane. I would like to think if I was one of those soldiers, I would at least uh, try to bring up the possibility of maybe hiding behind some trees and some rocks. Just to, excuse me. Excuse me, general. Excuse me. Uh, yes, Cummins. What is it? All right. Okay. Hear me out. This might sound crazy. What if, what if instead of just standing in easily targeted kind of lines, uh, slowly walking into cannon fire. <laughs> what if What if we hid behind some trees and some rocks? And then the other guys, they march towards us, and we kind of just, you know, uh, pop out and shoot at them from time to time. I mean, it's just a thought. It, it seems like it's worth trying. Uh, the French soldiers had never seen this type of fighting before. Plus, the Haitians and their general had, had a secret weapon, mosquitoes carrying yellow fever. Man, first a fucking plague, and now this. Uh, the locals were immune to it, but the French got hit hard. Of the nearly 30,000 French troops in Haiti, only 4,000 of them would be strong enough to fight by the end of the battle. They were so sick or dying or dead from yellow fever. Haiti, with the help of the British and Spanish, liberated itself in 1804, yeah, and then ruined all of Napoleon's plans in the Caribbean. Uh, I found a recent historian who, who called this uh, Napoleon's Vietnam, right? First, Admiral Nelson hits him with his own Pearl Harbor, and now these mosquitoes and dudes uh, hiding behind trees are hitting him with Vietnam. In total... During the Haitian Revolution, France would lose 75,000 men, and the Haitians and British lost 200,000 and 45,000, respectively. Uh, despite losing more troops overall, they just still beat the French. So wasn't it wasn't a quick couple weeks, easy victory. Uh, the French loss of Haiti made the Louisiana, Louisiana Territory undesirable to Napoleon. And that coupled again with his concern that America may want to fight him, uh, his need for more cash to fight Europe, all of that helped him uh, convince him to get rid of the territory. So to help fund the war efforts against those pesky English, Napoleon sold more than 800,000 square miles uh, to the U.S. for $15 million on April 30th, 1803. 
initially came out to be about four cents a square mile. And a lot of people have called it the greatest real estate deal in the history of the world. Uh, the Louisiana Territory immediately doubled the size of the U.S., six states, uh, and pieces of nine more would be made out of it. And it would also help uh, fuel Napoleon's war machine in Europe. Uh, back to the European theaters of war. Europeans' Napoleonic Wars lasted for over a decade, from 1803 until 1815. This dude fought so much, uh, fought so many different nations, basically fought all of Europe over and over again. Uh, the fighting got bloodier and bloodier and bloodier uh, as artillery gun technology and tactics pushed the battles harder and harder. Uh, initially, most uh, mostly since British laid to the west of France and not to the east, and he didn't have to worry about naval battles, uh, Napoleon was able to steamroll over the armies of Europe. And by 1805, much of the continent was under his control. With so many victories, he was feeling invincible. Uh, Napoleon was fighting multiple wars, uh, battles in multiple places. He was winning most of them. Uh, the Peninsular War, though, was one he would not win. Napoleon invaded Spain and Pol Portugal in 1807, and the conflict wouldn't end until 18 1814. Uh, the regimented French army was once again put off balance by enemy guerrilla tactics, this time from the Spanish and Portuguese. During the Peninsular War in 1805, as fate would have it, Napoleon would have most of his fleet destroyed by the British Navy for a second time. Many had been pissed. Just motherfucking boats! God damn it, I hate boats! If those bangers and mash-eating cocksuckers just didn't have boats, I would rule the world. Choke on your beans and toast, you boat-loving bastards. Uh, and what do you know? It was the same guy who beat him at sea, who'd beaten him back in Egypt. In the Battle of Trafalgar, just like uh, in the Battle of the Nile, the famous Admiral Horatio Nelson commanded a British victory, Nelson destroying all of Napoleon's ships again. Admiral Nelson, uh, however, would die in, this, in battle, so at least Napoleon didn't have to worry about the same dude getting a three-peat on him. Uh, the British Navy, though, would continue to dominate the seas for the next 100 years. Emperor Bonaparte would end his Napoleonic Wars with zero allies. The United Kingdom and every nation in Europe would end up joining one of the several military coalitions against him, including the Holy Roman Empire, Russia, Sweden, Naples, Sicily, Prussia, Saxony, Hungary, Spain, Sardinia, uh, Austria, Portugal, the Netherlands, Bavaria, uh, Württemberg, Baden, uh, even Switzerland. Even Switzerland joined in. Even Switzerland was like, you know, usually we, we try to stay neutral, but fuck that guy. Uh, despite so many nations joining forces to beat him, Napoleon initially was kicking all of their asses other than Britain's. And he might have somehow eventually been able to take uh, over the entire continent, but he pulled a Hitler and he tried to invade Russia on top of fighting everybody else. After Russia pulled out of a shipping blockade agreement called the Continental System that Napoleon had set up against Britain, Bonaparte tried to punish him for it. Uh, just like Napoleon uh, underestimated the devastating heat of the Egyptian desert, he underestimated the might of a Russian winter. He ignored his advisors, and in June of 1812, he took his men to war in Russia. He actually assembled the largest army in the history of Europe to attack Russia. Estimates range between 450 and 650 thousand French troops uh, ended up fighting against 200,000 Russian soldiers. Napoleon's goal was to fight Russia near their western border, crush them quick, and that was not Russia's plan. The Russians knew they'd have a hard time fighting the massive French army face-to-face, -face, so they fought unconventionally, attacking, retreating, attacking, retreating, drawing Napoleon deeper and deeper into the forbidding Russian terrain as the weather grew colder. And then just as disease had ravaged Napoleon's troops in Syria and Haiti, once again, his soldiers are dying by the thousands, this time of typhus, dysentery, and uh, diphtheria. Estimates put the French deaths at well over 100,000 who died of disease. 
And yet we have a growing anti-vaccination movement today. Fucking history. Turns out it's important to know some shit about. Why do we have vaccinations, anti-vaxxers? So we don't die of shit like diphtheria. You fucking emotionally thinking idiot. God damn it. Okay. On September 7th, 1812, the French emperor oversees the bloodiest battle of the Russian campaign at the Battle of Borodino. Not far from Moscow, the village of Borodino was the best place for the Russian army to make their stand. They weren't going to lose Moscow without a fight. When the smoke cleared, the losses on both sides were immense. Russians lost around 40,000 troops, while the French lost an estimated 30 to 45,000. Uh, 35, yeah, 45,000. Most historians put the official number at around 70,000 dead in just one battle. Uh, by September 14th, Napoleon watched the Russians burn three quarters of their own city of Moscow uh, to make sure the French didn't have enough food or supplies that they needed to stick around. Bonaparte was forced to retreat with around 21 to 23,000 soldiers. Think about how many he had brought. Despite the French emperor's heavy losses, he quickly recruited more men, now fought Germany. Oh, he's not done. Ah, lose a couple hundred thousand dudes. Fuck, whatever, man. We'll keep fighting. Uh, several battles were fought between French forces and an allied army that would grow to over 360,000 men. Not to be outdone by the Battle of Bordino, the Battle of Leipzig, uh, Leipzig in Germany, also known as the Battle of Nations, would go on to be the bloodiest battle in European history until World War I. Nearly 600,000 soldiers are involved. Well over half a million men fighting. Uh, ends up with between 80 and 127,000 total casualties, over 2,000 artillery weapons fired, over 200,000 rounds of ammunition. Napoleon's forces had 38,000 men killed or wounded, and another 15,000 were captured. This loss really put a dent in Napoleon's invincible god-king, self-described spiritual successor to Charlemagne persona. Right? Soon the fighting would make its way back to France and Napoleon's first reign as emperor would come to an end. You can't propaganda your way out of getting your ass kicked in your own country. Right On March 30, 1814, the Allied armies pushed Napoleon all the way back to Paris. Within a week on April 6, Napoleon is forced to abdicate his throne. He is exiled to Elba. This part of the story makes no fucking sense to me on any level. He's exiled to Elba, an island in the Mediterranean just six miles uh, off of the coast of Tuscany, uh, south of France. Right. Remarkably, uh, Napoleon able to negotiate his own terms, uh, his own surrender terms. He himself chooses Elba and he's supposed to be paid two million francs annually and be given a guard of 400 men. What a great way to get kicked out of your country. Like, I would love to lose like that. What? That's the best way to lose ever. Dan, we're kicking you out of Idaho. All right. Uh, you son of a bitch. We're, we're tired of it. We're tired of your shit. So get ready for this. Uh, I can't wait to see you weep. We are going to send you to Hawaii where we're going to force you to make do with about $2 million a year and just uh, have a staff of a few hundred. So take that. Enjoy time on the beach with all your money, you fucking idiot. How fun does it feel? Uh, is, is it to lose? Uh, uh, good. This, this is great. Um, Napoleon will also be considered the sovereign of Elba. He's put in charge. Why? Why would they do this? He used to be like, uh, he used to be called emperor. He's still emperor. He's emperor of Elba now. Instead of 70 million people, you know, he's ruling about 12,000. Um, uh, also about a thousand of his most devout supporters are allowed to live with him on Elba. Why would you do that? Uh, somehow this seems like a good idea to the allied forces to let Napoleon keep living, to give him a lot of money, to surround him with his closest, most high ranking supporters, give him essentially a tiny army, let him rule a small nation. Uh, the British provide him, uh, with an official babysitter, some officer named Neil Campbell, uh, who does a whole lot of dick. Uh, Napoleon essentially ignores him and starts preparing to fuck Europe up again. 
Napoleon, uh, accustomed to being in charge, takes his rule in Elba seriously. He uh, changes their legal system, fixes their schools, instigates uh, infrastructure improvements like new roads, the draining of marshes, boosts agriculture, develops mines, even redesigns their flag, and it still flies today. I mean, the guy, the guy was really good at running things and, uh, when he wasn't just deciding to try and take over everything. Um, Bonaparte spent 300 days ruling Elba. His mother was able to join him there. His second wife, Marie-Louis uh, Louis and uh, his son, uh, Napoleon Jr., they don't uh, join him. But his Polish mistress, Marie uh, Waluska, uh, does join him. Of course, of course she does. It was there that she introduced Bonaparte to the son they'd had together, Alexandre uh, Joseph, uh, who, who legend has it had four heads, which was the average amount of heads for Polish people at that time. Uh, through, <laughs> it's ridiculous, of course. Through, uh, through his many visitors, Napoleon had been gathering intelligence on his enemies. He learned that the French people were already getting a little tired of their new king, um, Louis XVIII. They got a fucking king again. Why? Why? Uh, Bonaparte's followers still in France were planning a rebellion. He learned that the British, who were weary of his constant guests, uh, wanted to, to, to move him to a, a much more prison-like atmosphere, move him to an island called St. Helena, uh, a little island of less than 50 square miles, roughly 1,200 miles uh, off the western coast of Africa, roughly 1,800 miles from the eastern coast of South America. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere, in the middle of the Atlantic between South America and Africa. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more in a bit. Uh, Bonaparte uh, begins planning his escape. The Elba dictator isn't discreet about it either. Even announces he's leaving to the other Elba officials because the English did not pay the money he was supposed to receive. He feels justified. It was like a breach of their treaty. So he just, uh, he escapes. He builds a military force of 2,000 men, 600 Imperial guards, puts together a small fleet of ships. He calls his Navy, paints his fleet to look like big British ships, uh, or or, excuse me, to look like British ships, packs uh, 1150 followers in them, sets sail for France and sneaks past the British. On March 20th, 1815, he makes it back to French soil, immediately rallies another army of supporters, regains control of France, right? Nah, now it's time for Emperor the sequel. Uh, Part of his speech goes like this. Soldiers, in my exile, I heard your voice. Your general is restored to you. Come and join him. Tear down those colors which the nation has prescribed and which for 25 years served as a rallying signal to all the enemies of France. Mount the cockade tricolor. You bore it in the days of our greatness. He's good, man. He's good. March 25th, 1815, upon learning that Napoleon had returned to France and uh, taken it over again, Europe collectively sighed and thought, why the fuck did we not kill him? Um, uh, Europe, Europe bonds again together uh, over their common, common enemy. They prepare to fight him again. Napoleon's second run at Emperor God King only lasts 100 days, but it's packed full of a lot of violence. Uh, you know, uh, it became known as the 100-day campaign. After several battles, Napoleon is finally defeated once and for all at Waterloo in Belgium. Finally. Unreal how long it took to, for Europe to beat this dude for good. On June 19th, 1815, 72,000 French troops versus 68,000 British, Belgian, Dutch, and German troops fight in the Battle of Waterloo. A deciding factor in Napoleon losing once again is, uh, is weather. This time it's rain. Uh, it was Napoleon's choice to either wait until midday uh, uh, to, to to attack or attack, you know, early in the morning. His, his idea was to wait, wait until the muddy terrain dries a bit. And his choice uh, proves to be a fatal mistake. The delay gives upwards of 30,000 Prussian troops just enough time to join their allies and outnumber the French in time for the battle. The French forces are defeated. Napoleon reportedly, at least told by the British, rides back to France in tears. Uh, Allied forces capture and defeat Napoleon again and decide, hey, maybe we shouldn't let him be emperor anymore. This time, he isn't given an island to be ruler of. Uh, this, t- this time, um, they're going to put him to that St. Helena island. But they still don't kill him, which is crazy to me. 
they they do send him out to this remote St. Helena Island to live his final days as a prisoner. I do not remember ever hearing about this little teeny island before the suck. It is so small and so remote. Napoleon called his new home the Cursed Rock. Uh, Bonaparte would spend the rest of his days playing cards and dictating his memoirs. This little island was found, a little uh, extra trivia here. I, I'm just fascinated by this place. Found by Portuguese explorers at the dawn of the 16th century. No indigenous people were found living there. But the island had plenty of fresh water and soil uh, good enough to grow fruit and vegetables. So they built a few structures, plant a bunch of fruit, trees, and vegetables, import livestock. And they basically used it as kind of a 16th century truck stop for boats headed between Europe and South America or between Africa and South America. Or basically for any trade routes that took sailors through that remote area. Uh, today, a little less than 5,000 people live there full time. And I so want to visit this place. It, it just got an airport a few years ago. It is so isolated. Uh, many rescue attempts were allegedly planned by Bonaparte supporters, even one involving early submarines, but nothing came to fruition. And Napoleon would die of apparent stomach cancer on Saint, uh, in Saint, or on St. Helena, May 5th, 1821, at the age of 51. He requested to be buried in France along the banks of the Seine, uh, uh, along, amongst the French people I've loved so much, but the British buried him on his cursed rock. Uh, and then in 1840, his body was finally uh, dug up, taken to France, Although possibly not all of it. Uh, a couple interesting pieces go missing, allegedly. More on that in just a second. Uh, even the French do not honor his uh, burial wishes. And instead of burying him by the river, uh, or the river scene, uh, he was entombed in the Hotel des Invalides, uh, uh, in Des Invalides, a cemetery for honored French military leaders. And that takes us out of this, what was an epic time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. I know I may uh, may have messed up some words, but I do feel like compared to earlier French bass sucks, better this time. Better this time. Uh, feeling the French a little more. Uh, before I wrap up with final thoughts and takeaways, let's talk about those missing body parts for a second. Uh, the main one, uh, uh, of course, uh, is his penis. Uh, and it's almost certainly a myth, but it's an interesting myth. The French doctor working on Napoleon's corpse in St. Helena in perhaps one of the most brazen cases of malpractice in human history, if it did happen, supposedly took a couple souvenirs, uh, including a Bonaparte rib and the emperor's wean. And he was not secretive about it. The myth states that there were apparently 17 eyewitnesses that watched a doctor cut off the emperor's uh, rotted up manhood and just put it in a little box, which, you know, that seems legit. Just a big group of people gathered around a doctor Cutting off a, a, a rotten dick, right? W would there even still be anything there like 20 years later? And then this weird-ass doctor supposedly gave the emperor's man route to Napoleon's personal uh, chaplain who took it to Corsica. Uh, the chaplain is killed uh, uh, in some unrelated blood feud, but the 1.5-inch mummified peepee of the god king manages to stay in his family for 100 years. Uh, Napoleon's tiny rotted dick apparently has passed then uh, down through several generations of the same family that in 1924, an English bookseller acquires it, puts it in a jar, and like a proper English gentleman, labels it a mummified tendon. And then later, it's sold for 400 pounds, finds its way to Philadelphia. In 1927, the French Art Museum in New York apparently gets a hold of it, displays Napoleon's dick for a bit, tries to sell it back to France. They don't want to buy it, probably because it's not Napoleon's dick. Then eight years later, one of the world's most famous neurologists, John K. Latimer, buys Napoleon's Dingle Dangle for $3,000. This guy also worked as a neurologist at the Nuremberg Trials, went on to become somewhat famous for collecting creepy shit. Uh, part of his collection was a bit of blood-soaked fabric from inside JFK's limousine, uh, a bloody collar worn by Abe Lincoln on the night of his assassination, assassination 
Uh, and the Latimer family is still allegedly in, in possession of Napoleon's mud hammer. I can imagine someone in the Latimer family just, you know, just waiting for their for their grandparent to die so they can just get their hands on that wang, you know? Just come on, come on, Nina. I want that sweet, clean Napoleon ween. Uh, so that's that. That's legend. Uh, probably not true, but an interesting story. Uh, so what a life Napoleon lived though, right? People died pretty much everywhere he went. Uh, he also helped modernize the military, law, education, accounting, and banking. Uh, he pushed science and the arts. He was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of men in his effort to take over the world. Uh, but our world has also benefited in many ways from his influence. Uh, some historians like to lump Napoleon in with the most vicious tyrants in history like Hitler and Stalin. Others place him in high esteem with, with uh, great men like Charlemagne, Alexander the Great, uh, the guy who uh, invented yoga pants. Hail Safina! A uh, recent article on TowardsDataScience.com ranked all military generals, created a list of the best war commanders ever, and based on whatever stats they used, Napoleon blew everyone away. Number one by a landslide, more than doubling the runner-up on the list, Julius Caesar. I mean, he was, I mean, he, was, he fought like basically all of the rest of Europe for a long time. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was brilliant and innovative, also brutal and petty. He reshaped the world, but he left a lot of corpses behind him. Uh, famous for being able to inspire men who followed him into battle, but also very reckless with their lives when they did so. Uh, talented propagandists. Part of the reason we talk about him today is he, he used propaganda to, uh, you know, exaggerate his mythology. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps more than anything, Napoleon, like I said earlier, showed what a single life, uh, you know, can do. Uh, what, what one little shaved ape with tools can accomplish in a lifetime with a lot of ambition, a dump load truck, a self-confidence and a bit of luck. You know, you can uh, you can fist your way into uh, a place in history forever. Pretty amazing what meat sack, what one meat sack can accomplish, for better or for worse, with one short life on this planet. Um, interesting, what Napoleon himself thought of how his legacy would be remembered. He would write uh, towards the end of his life, in spite of all the libels, I have no fear whatever about my fame. Posterity will do me justice. The truth will be known. And the good which I have done with the faults which I have committed will be compared. I am not uneasy for the results. Had I succeeded, I should have died with the reputation of the greatest man that ever existed. As it is, although I have failed, I shall be considered as an extraordinary man. My elevation was unparalleled because unaccompanied by crime, I have fought 50 pitched battles, almost all of which I have gained. I have fa framed and carried into effect a code of laws that will bear my name to the most distant posterity. From nothing, I raised myself to be the most powerful monarch in the world. Europe was at my feet. My ambition was great, I admit, but it was of a cold nature and caused by events and the opinion of great bodies. I have always been of opinion that the sovereignty lay in the people. In fact, the imperial government was kind of a republic. Called to the head of it by the voice of the nation, my maxim was, my, oh, my, my maxim was the career is open to talents without distinction of birth or fortune. And this system of equality is the reason that your oligarchy hate me so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had kind of an interesting perspective on his life. Um, man, his ambition was to be the, the greatest man the world had ever known. And, and, and I think that people hated him so much because you continually fucking kill people in Europe everywhere. Right? You, were the, you were the worst in that way. In that way, you're worse than every serial killer we have ever talked about combined. Okay, a lot of info. Let's uh, let's hit the high notes again, resummarize some of it, and learn a little bit more with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Europe should still be thanking a Great Britain for stopping Napoleon. Every time he got some momentum, they were right there to sink his battleships. 
Number two, had the British not sunk Napoleon's battleships while he was in Egypt, there's a chance he would have still, uh, we would still have no idea what hieroglyphics, uh, you know, what they mean. Number three, France fought the bloody French Revolution specifically to remove a royal dictator. And when it was all said and done, they ended up with a, with another dictator, Napoleon. If you're going to fight for change, make sure that if you win, you actually truly change some things. Uh, number four, Napoleon was born on one small island, not bothering anyone. And 51 years later, he would die on another little island, not bothering anyone again. In between, he would wreak havoc on Europe, uh, unlike anyone ever had for over two decades. Number five, new info. A lot of people died because of Napoleon, like so many. It's impossible to determine exactly how many in total. But it's estimated that anywhere from 3,250,000 to 6,500,000 died in the Napoleonic Wars. And that total includes, you know, military of all sides, civilians of all sides. Uh, and that total does not include Napoleon's Egyptian or Haitian or Middle Eastern or other pre-Napoleonic War battles. A lot of death. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that's it for this week. Uh, wow, Napoleon, big suck. But we sucked it. I know there was a lot we didn't get to. Uh, the dude lived way, 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 way too much life to have it properly investigated in a couple hours. Uh, you know, we could do, you could do an entire podcast easily dedicated to to just Napoleon, you know, and run it for, for a long, long time. But I think we gave a nice overview today. No no shortage of info out there on the uh, the internet if you want to suck further out there at your library bookstores. Andrew Roberts, New York Times bestselling 2014 Napoleon biography, simply titled Napoleon A Life, has gotten a ton of excellent reviews. I haven't read it. They're not a sponsor, but it did win a Los Angeles Times book re, uh, book prize for bi uh, biographies. Uh, the Great Courses Plus, a sponsor, also has an entire course devoted to Napoleon and the French Revolution. So a lot more to suck out there if you want to find it. Uh, big thanks to the Times Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bitalixer Danger Dangerbrain, Axis Apparel. Thanks to the Lily Twins for kicking off the research this week. Awesome as ever. And huge, huge thanks to new full-time Suck Dungeon employee, Zach Flannery, for his immense help on this. We'll get him a nickname soon. It's insane work week this week in the Suck Dungeon. Got to give him a proper, proper intro later when I'm not touring uh, with the Happy Murder Tour stand-up for a week. Um, and by the way, you know, uh, going to be in Des Moines, Kansas City, uh, and Nashville, you know, coming up here soon this week. And then uh, Dallas and Houston soon after. Next week on Time Suck, we head north for more history. Suck the Vikings. Hail Odin. Get on that spider horse. Oh, the Vikings, much more complicated than just the brutal sociopaths they're often portrayed as. Wasn't just raping and pillaging. We're going to find out how the descendants of Viking warriors evolved from international pirates and slavers to some of the modern world's most advanced and egalitarian nations. Going to cover a few thousand years in North history in a single suck. Going to try not to humiliate our growing group of Scandinavian suckers in the process. I know in Sweden especially, we're getting more and more suckers. Going to talk about berserkers, the Viking discovery of North America. Uh, going to look into the lives of some famous Vikings such as Eric the Red, Leif Erikson, uh, and Olaf, some last fucking name, crazy ass word I hope to have a better handle on next week. And many other Vikings. We're going to revisit some of the North myth uh, mythology from our Norse mythology suck and a lot more. Time now for today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay. First update, talking about uh, a lot of war today. Have an interesting World War One suck update uh, coming in from Cameron Wilkinson. Uh, Cameron writes, Dear Lucifina's chief conquistador. 
Okay. Just wanted to thank you for a wonderfully dark and informative podcast. It's really helped me bond with my brother after not seeing him for two years. Hail Nimrod. I love that. I, I talked to a lot of time suckers at, uh, after the Cleveland live suck, and I love hearing stories about people getting closer with family, friends, making new friends, forming new bonds because of just having interesting shit to talk about every week. Um, I just got done with the World War One suck and thought it was awesome. If I could just add one thing, uh, I'd like to talk about the aviation innovations that took place. Before interruptive gear or even the protective plane on the back of the propeller blades were thought of. Now, this is that interrupter gear is what allowed, uh, you know, the, the fighter planes back in World War One to shoot in between the propellers as they're flying so they can, you know, have these mounted guns shoot at the other planes. Well, before this, German and French reconnaissance aircraft would try to shoot each other down by firing rifles and handguns, most likely revolvers, at each other while passing by, kind of like jousting in the air. Thought you might find that interesting. I do. Uh, if you don't read the whole email, if it doesn't make it in the show, what this big deal? Uh, keep pumping out that sweet suck. See you in Nimrod's nuts. Yes. Dude, that's awesome. Thank you. Just, just leaning out the plane, shooting at another plane with a rifle. How'd you like that job? All right. That's insane. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, hope to see you in Nimrod's ball sack down the road, buddy. Uh, we mentioned McGill's pop today, and we have an interesting uh, butt update from Time Sucker. Uh, goes by uh, Canicus. Hey, Dan, I listened to your Donner Party suck, and I just wanted you to know you weren't too far from the truth when you joked about McGill's pop. It's actually called prolapse <laughs> and can happen if you push too hard when defecating. It's the tearing of the anal wall, which makes the anus fall out. It's caused by too much anal sex. Uh, actually, I would, I would correct on that, the wrong kind of anal sex, or, 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 or hard pushing when defecating. P.S. Don't research that word alone, or you'll go to websites that are unsavory. Love always, soon to be space lizard, Canicus. Uh, yes, anal, <laughs> anal prolapse is no joke. Absolutely should not be Googled unless you are a masochist and, and you have a strong stomach. And for sure, definitely do not, uh, as I did one time, because I just couldn't help myself. Someone's like, dude, you ever seen those pictures of dogs who have prolapse buttholes? And I'm like, no, they're like, just look it up. And I wanted to just like fucking smash. I wanted to throw up on my computer and then just smash into a million pieces. It was so gross. A little more poop knowledge <laughs> coming in from Time Sucker Brittany K. Brittany writes, Dear Master Sucker, I recently listened to your Order of the Solar Temple Suck and had a hilariously interesting conversation with my spouse who had not yet listened to it. Just a little background for you. I am an anthropology major with a health emphasis. So I have looked up a lot of weird medical things for school. When you were talking about Dr. Luc Jure using homeopathic cures and how he might have tried to convince someone to let me <laughs> to let me defecate in the, in the mouth because he had a healthy poop to cure uh, the person with unhealthy poop, it made me think of a fecal microbial transplantation, FMT. An FMT is where someone with healthy poo donates it to a clinic, they mix it with a saline solution, and then inject it into an unhealthy person's colon via a colonoscopy to cure some bacterial issues. It's actually a brilliant way of fixing some very terrible diseases. But still, when you said this, it reminded me of this. I was telling my spouse about this, and he jokingly said that while Dr. Luke Chere went to defecate in the patient's mouth, he must have thought, whoa, we're wrong hole, wrong hole. Anyways, we had a good laugh from this. Just thought you might too. Yes. Attached is a short video explaining a fecal micro... <laughs> Micro, uh, microbial transplantation with some cute cartoons and a boring narrator if you're interested on how it works. Well, thank you. Uh, oh, no, she's, and you say, uh, thank you for all you do in making the world a better, more learned place. You're soon to be space lizard once I finally graduate and get a real job, Brittany. Thank you, Brittany. I have, I have not watched the video yet. Uh, maybe I will soon. It sounds better than the other, other images I could have seen based on the previous uh, update. And we also had a lot of time suckers uh, writing about fecal transplants the past few weeks. So thank you for sharing that info, all of you. Uh, I totally believe it's real. 
Appreciate the kind words and hail Nimrod. And uh, finally, uh, last one for today. I got time sucker Cassandra with one of my lies. And she also sent in a great meme uh, regarding more of my lies that I'll share share with you. Uh, Dear motherfucker, time suck, master of all. Love the podcast. Wanted to let you know that you got my ass with the ombre Asino ants and the monster of the Andes time suck. And that Pedro Lopez one. I was driving home from work, listening to it, and started to freak out, especially when you said that Southern time suckers would know what you were talking about because they were appearing down there. I was starting to call some of my friends who had just moved down there when I heard you say it was all bullshit. (laughs) What followed was a very awkward conversation. I usually see through your bullshit, but this time I really thought it was true. Also, I saw this pic on Facebook, and it made me think of how much you hate the Polish scum. As a joke, obviously. Uh, I don't know if you will trust this link or if it'll work for you, but it did when I tested it. I hope you get a kick out of it like I did. Keep on sucking. I'll keep on sucking you. I like it. Mutual suckage, Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra. Yes, I did click the link. And also, a lot of time suckers sent in this via either Instagram or the email, and I'm so thankful for it. There's a meme out there on like Reddit and some places, and it starts off uh, it's like a big, it's like a, kind of a hard picture to post because it's uh, very tall. But it, it starts off um, with uh, headlines of crimes committed by Polish people or, or just things, you know, um, silly th- things Polish people have done. So it says, Polish man finds bullet in head five years after party. Polish man tries rafting to Australia. Polish man electrocuted while peeing. Uh, Polish man tries to rob bank with spoon. And then the meme says, Florida man. And then, uh, and then Florida man says, finally, a worthy opponent. Our battle will be legendary. Uh, yes, because, of course, so many horrible articles start off with Florida man was arrested today. So I love that. Thank you for sending that in. Thanks, all of you. And thanks for listening to our show and continuing to let us what we do uh, here on Time Suck. That's all for today's updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Don't try to take over all of Europe. But if you must try, uh, you know, do your best to avoid uh, pushing east into Russia in the winter. And most importantly, keep on sucking. (laughs) Enjoy time on the beach with all your money, you fucking idiot. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.